my fellow Westorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valarie Redis. Each episode of Valarie Redis for the Winds of Winter will feature a guest or guests. We'll take a closer look at each chapter, zooming in to the micro level, going through them one by one instead of in batches. That gives us more time to focus in. And because there's so much going on, there it's more appropriate for nice wide open discussions with lots of different takes from different people. The standard warning must apply as well. These chapters are subject to change by the time we see them. That warning is uh, more appropriate this time than for the other chapters because we discuss chapters changing. But frankly, with this one, we're missing a lot of the details. So it's not so much as that it might change, although it might but that we just don't know everything that's there. We're not working with the direct text a lot of it, uh, with a lot of it, which means we'll miss some of George's writing style, the cleverness, the nuance that we like to look for. We'll have to wait for the real version of the chapter for that sort of analysis. But there's a lot we do know of for certain here, and that is plenty for us to dig into. And to help us with that is today's guest, Jim McGeehan. Welcome back, friend. We've had you uh, on back well, was it Redgrass Field was the first episode you were on, and that's pretty appropriate because it's mentioned today, isn't that right? It is, and uh, we're wrangling some wrangling some uh, technical problems and an ornery computer, <laughs> but uh, looks like we got everything situated. But it, maybe that's the maybe that's the technology telling me that I need to guest star on your podcast more, <laughs> so, so that we can catch these sort of things. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> well said. Well I, said. I don't. I don't believe in uh, curses. But I do notice coincidences. <laughs> right on. But it, it is good. Uh, my name is Jim, commonly called something like a lawyer. I write for Wars of uh, Wars and Politics of a Song of Ice and Fire, and uh, mostly, mostly, I think I now just do answering questions and uh, eh, sometimes idly playing with my Valyrian steel theories. <laughs> right on. Yeah, that's fun. We've done some panels together too. We've we've done a panel at least once once a year at Con of Thrones. And of course, there was no Con of Thrones uh, for obvious reasons, but it will return and we'll probably get back on some panels again. We, we're a good team. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm really missing these panels, almost itching a little bit, being like, oh man, where, why am I not sitting on a panel with Aziz talking about <laughs> trying to dissect everything we can off of three obscure lines of, in a uh, single novel? I think the last panel we did was also somewhat battle oriented we discussed like how humanity might fight against the others like tactics yes. and strategy that was really fun that was a good one yeah um, so I, that was that was a lot of fun yeah. similar stuff in this one not nearly as supernatural but it is battle oriented we'll talk about the human conflict within the battle as well as the actual tactics and and all the gory details like that each episode of val are we read us for winds of winter is going to start with a brief history of the chapter itself not much to say about this one. We've sort of covered the details of this one since it's sort of in parallel with Barristan 1. But for completeness of sake, this one was read aloud at Boscone 2013. So it's been out for a while. Between releases and readings, it was the fifth overall to be put out and the third to be read at a convention. At this convention, Boscone 1, George actually read both Barristan 1 and 2 but of course, Barrison 1 was subsequently fully released. But at the time, it was in this status, both just sort of read and summarized by the people who were there. So thank you to Azador. That's the username who posted this summary on westros.org back in 2013, February 27th. 
And it's a big thread, people weighing in on different possibilities. So shout out to westrust.org as well, because that's where I first saw it, probably where just about everybody first saw it, um, or at least you read a version that was copied from there and, and stuck elsewhere. So let's start with the same question I've been asking all of our guests, which is to have you weigh in, Jim, on how would it feels like to start the book with all these battles, which is a very different feel from all the other books. Usually the battles are towards the end, maybe in the middle, but it's it's usually the kind of thing that's a climactic thing in any sort of fiction or nonfiction, really, as well, because anytime you have a book about wars, oftentimes the war itself is a centerpiece. So how does that, as a, as a reader and as analysis, uh, how does that work for you? What do you have to say about that? Well, first, we have to kind of establish the proper context, because these battles were actually supposed to be the denouement of the fifth book. Yeah. They so, were so, yeah. <laughs> so in, in that sense, it's like um, it, it's almost like the, the uh, they just ran out of budget and they had to push push the uh, the big thing the next season when they had another budget. <laughs> good point. <laughs> but um, but it, I think it actually is good because. We really did get a lot of great foreshadowing at the end of the fifth book. I know I personally, the thing I'm most looking forward to is the King's Landing chapters because it's like, all right, we just killed Kevin. There's going to be a lot of stuff going down there, so there's going to be action. But now we actually cut to these this Battle of Ice and Fire, which, I mean, the Battle of Ice, I'm really looking forward to because there's a lot of uh, the Battle of the Ice, the actual historical parallel with uh, Nevsky. But uh, the Battle of Fire is going to be very interesting, too. Essentially, we're having perhaps I would say probably the two worthiest monarchs we have left going in and actually doing the the physical thing. But not really, because Daenerys isn't there. <laughs> right. And <laughs> she said it in motion, and, sort of, but she's not there. Yeah. And Stannis, Stannis is waiting and there's there's a plot, but it's like it, it's going to be enabled by so many other things with his, uh, you know, Snowpaw, Northman and all that other stuff. So. We're getting the action scenes of, I really think these going to be driven by people that are not the monarch themselves, but just by the people that are surrounding and supportive of the monarch. So that'll, in, in a way, we can actually be able to dissect what these, what these individuals that believe in this monarch, what are they thinking? What are they doing? Um, we, we even see this because, especially with, when it comes to Stannis and Daenerys, their followers are really loyal and really supportive, and they really believe in the mission that the uh, the monarch has. And that's nice, especially when, comparatively speaking, we see a lot of these characters in this novel series are really out purely for mercenary gain. Yeah. But, you know, the, the, the supporters of Daenerys and the supporters of Stannis are, are true believers. Now, not all of them, of course. We have plenty of wheeler-dealing, wheel uh, you know, hook-and-crook-type stuff going on in both camps. But... Bar- Barristan's a believer in Daenerys. Yeah, he is. And, and we we love uh, Davos specifically f- for his belief in Stannis. And, you know, even when he, uh, you know, goes behind his back, it's it's for the greater idea of Stannis's monarchy. So yeah. that is something I'm really looking forward to seeing with the, I mean, I know Davos isn't going to be in the Battle of the Ice, but I'm looking forward to seeing how these supporters, in, a, in essence, enact the mission of their monarchs at war. Well said. Yeah, that's a really good point. And something you you brought up there, I wanted to add on to that I'd never really thought about before. There are an enormous, enormous number of parallels between Stannis and you've touched on a few of them there. It's by itself, it could be more than one episode's worth of material. The idea that right now, as you said, they're fighting for Danny 
And some of them don't even know she's alive, right? Some of them think she might be dead. They're holding on to hope. Like in Barristan's case, he's basically in denial about the possibility that she's dead. He's acting as if, well, she's definitely alive. If she's not, well, I can't really conceive of that possibility. Like he, in the, intellectually, he knows it's possible, even though as readers, we know it's definitely not true. But he doesn't choose to engage with that possibility because if, if she's lost, then what is his purpose? What's his, you know, there's, it's much more difficult for him. So he's acting as if it's, is, is it, if it's the case. The same is somewhat true of Stannis. He t- even tells Justin Massey, you may even hear that I'm dead, you know, continue on regardless. Of course, the circumstances of this death and de- disappearance are very different, but it still presents us with the same situation, something that you touched on there with them fighting for their monarch, even if the monarch might not be alive. Now, of course, they are, but it's super important to put ourselves in their in their shoes and think, well, what would you do if the person you were following and living up to their ideals and you thought they were dead? Like, that's, do you still carry on that mission? You still try to carry on those ideals, even if they're not there to lead you. It's an interesting uh, human conundrum there. So that's something we'll touch on as well. Leadership is a big part of this episode. We're talking about one of the topics we have planned is what it means to follow a man like Barristan, a living legend, and what it means to face these challenges in real time rather than just think about them in advance. So normally, uh, we write our own synopsis of the chapter. We try to distill it and, and hit the high points just to set it all up. Even for us, a synopsis of a synopsis would be a bit too meta. So it's not a super long synopsis. And frankly, we're better at expanding on topics than shortening them. So it's only 800 words. We're just going to read the whole synopsis that we have. Uh, Jim and I trading off paragraphs here. And I uh, figure a few of you all out there haven't even looked this up fully. So this will be your uh, a thorough experience for you. His gut feels twisted from nervousness as he rides through the gates. He knows that the feeling will go away when time slows down in the chaos of battle. Danny's horse is easily outpacing the lads and the rest of the cavalry. Barristan is pleased because he intends to outrun the widower and strike the first blow. The young Kai are totally unprepared, and Barristan closes in on Maheridan, the largest of the trebuchets. The Stormcrows take up the cry, Dario, and Stormcrows fly. Barristan thinks that he will never again doubt the valor of sellswords. There are only 30 yards between the horse and the Yunkai legions by the time any defense is mounted. The air fills with arrows. A squire for the storm crows is killed, and a bolt pierces Barristan's shield. There are three horn blasts, and the pit fighters emerge from the gate behind them. Barristan glances back to see the pit fighters. There are about 200 of them, but they make enough noise for 2,000. One woman stands out, wearing nothing but greaves, sandals, a chainmail skirt, and a python. Barristan is a bit shocked, and... Watching her breast bouncing around, thinks that this day is sure to be her last. The pit fighters are mostly shouting Lorak and Hisdar, but some do call out Daenerys. Lorak is hit in the chest with an arrow, bringing Barristan's attention forward, but the squire keeps the banners held high and shakes it off. Barristan has reached the Herodin, but a Giscari legion 6,000 strong has lined up to protect the huge trebuchet. They are six ranks deep. The first rank kneels and holds their spears pointing out and up. The second rank stands and holds the spears at the waist height, and the third rank holds the spears out on their soldiers. The rest have small throwing spears and are ready to step forward when their comrades fall. Barristan knows that a maester's chain is only as strong as his weakest link and identifies the companies of the Yunkish lords as the weakest of his immediate foes, certainly weaker than the slave legions. In particular, Barristan targets the little pigeon and his herons. The slaves chosen to be herons were freakishly tall before they were put on stilts and wear pink scales and feathers and steel beaks. But Barristan sees that they will be blind because of the dawn rising over the city and like to break ranks easily. 
So Barristan turns away from the Legion guarding the trebuchet at the last minute and heads for the herons. He cuts off the head of one of the herons and his lads join the fray. Danny's horse knocks a heron into three others and they all fall over. In a moment, the herons are scattered and running away, led by the little pigeon himself. Unfortunately for the little pigeon, he trips over the fringes of his bird armor and gets caught by the red lamb. The little pigeon begs for mercy, saying that he will fetch a large ransom. The red lamb just says, I come for blood, not gold. Uh, knocks in the little pigeon's head with his mace, splattering blood all over Barristan and Danny's silver horse. The unsullied begin marching through the gates, and Barristan sees that the young guy have missed their chance to effectively launch a counterattack. As he watches more of the slave legions get slaughtered, mostly those who were chained together and could not retreat, he wonders where the sellsword companies like the treacherous second sons have gone. The unsullied finish lining up outside the gates, implacable even when one of their own number falls with a crossbow bolt to the neck. Tumko draws Barristan's attention to the bay, asking, why are there so many ships? Barristan remembers that yesterday there were 20, but now there are thrice as many. His heart sinks when he re- reasons that the ship from Volantis must have arrived, but then he sees that some of the ships are crashing together. He asks Tumko, whose young eyes can see more clearly, to identify the banners. Tumko says, squids, big squids, like in the Basilisk Isles, where sometimes they drag whole ships down. Barristan replies, where I'm from, we call them krakens. Realizing that the Greyjoys has arrived, his first thought is, has Balon joined with Joffrey or the Starks? But he realizes that he heard that Balon is dead, and he has wonders if that's anything to do with Balon's son, the boy who was a ward of the Starks. He sees that the Iron Men are coming ashore, fighting the Yunkish, and he says, surprised, they're on our side. The sailswords do not come to meet his charge because they were already preoccupied with the Ironborn. Barristan is almost gleeful. It's like Baylor Breakspear and Prince Makar, the hammer and the anvil. We have them. We have them. All right. That's it. So that's a pretty cool little chapter there. You know, you can tell there's a lot missing. You can tell there's some, some stuff that clearly the person writing the synopsis couldn't possibly capture it all. I mean, it's, it's George R. Martin. You, it's like a fire hose. There's no way you can, unless he was recording it, which clearly he wasn't, um, there'd be just no way to capture it all. So we're thankful for what we have here. What's your reaction just to this, uh, this summary, this synopsis? What's there, what isn't there, and um, all that. Well, I mean, first off, I always like it when we actually get a battle chapter. George R. R. Martin's a lot better than a lot of other fantasy authors in that he actually takes the time to describe things like formations and tactics and things like that. I mean, you know, he's not that's not his aim. His aim is clearly character work when he's doing his stories, but he does a lot better than most, and I, I can really appreciate that. I mean, especially when he's talking about things like the, the Giscari legions. How, how are they actually organized uh, when he's talking about, you know, his cab, you know, the cavalry? When he's, I mean, even when he's just, he does a lot when it comes to actually creating a soldierly type experience. I know that, uh, I believe it's in this chapter, Barristan has a speech where he talks about, um, you know, you're always going to be afraid. And yes, you can think, hey, I'm the only one that's going to, you know, soil themselves. But that's not true. We've all done that. And he, he really goes and just kind of makes, you know, gets his lads comfortable with the fact that, yeah, this is this is kind of stuff that's going to happen. And he doesn't make it say, you know, he's not always war is glory. and He's not always war is hell. He really tries to portray that there can be things about it. And I really appreciate that when it comes to him writing his military characters. I think I told you before, and I think this is the first thing we talked about when we were talking about this. I said, I really got a lot of George C. Scott energy from Barry's <laughs> Of course uh, I can do speech. it. Those are my boys, yeah. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking specifically George C. Scott with uh, in Patton. Ah. And I, 
And that's the speech where he says, you know, when you reach into a pile, puddle of goo that used to be your friend's head, you will know what to do. And, and that's really, because I mean, that's a horrifying thing, but then you, you come uh, out of it with certainty. Mm. And he's trying to sell that to the point where it's like, yes, there will be horror, and, but you will be okay. Just rely on your training, rely on what I, and I mean, especially that's true with his, I mean, Barristan's a living legend and he's got his little squires, his three squires. So he's actually trying to mold them into soldiers, not just tillers, but soldiers yeah. organized and, and instilling in them the Westerosi virtues that he grew up with. And you can kind of see that in, in this energy. And that's what, that's what I think. I mean, I really felt I could, if I could see Barristan uh, on a stage giving the same speech that Patton gives in the, the fake uh, first U.S. Army group, I, I wouldn't see that's too far off the mark. Nice. That's great. Uh, and so for those of you who don't know, some of you do know this already because you've heard chapters with Jim before. You're familiar with his work. Jim is U.S. military. You have military experience, military training, yes. all that. So this is not just, uh, this isn't just idle opinion. You have a lot of real insight here. Um, as you've been trained, you've been through some of these things. Um, I mean, you haven't been in like a battle of fire, but <laughs> no one has. So <laughs> maybe the real, the, 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 the realest examples of that would be pretty crazy to compare to this, but that's, uh, that's another story. In this line, let's, let's pick through some of the specifics of the synopsis. You've got some great notes here. We've got some notes from other folks as well. And let, let's go through that and then get into some more specific ideas. So uh, let's see here. Um, first topic, the Herodin itself, something that you... Ha- helped me understand here that I didn't potentially understand as well before was the importance of reaching an objective. Um, yeah. Like the purpose of having stated goals for a battle and then accomplishing that goal and how that affects morale. But it's not just the soldiers who accomplish that goal when it's something visible, like a, like a trebuchet that everyone on the battlefield, well, almost everyone on the battlefield can see. When they see it fall, they know that, hey, our side has had a score, a win of some kind. It's visible. And that also speaks a lot to the purpose of things like banners and horns, basically things that stand out in the chaos of battle. It's important to note that when it comes to battle, it's going to be chaotic and confusing all around. So in a lot of ways, soldiers are in their own little worlds, and it's just what's around them and what they can see. And for something like the Herodin, which is specifically the largest trebuchet, mm. if, if, the, if the defenders of Marine, if Danny's forces can see, you know, for example, the, uh, you know, Barristan's troops, they, they crush it, they knock it over, it, it, the, uh, the arm falls down, then they know that they've achieved not only just being able, they've overrun the Herodin's position because obviously the Giscari are going to be defending it, but they've also achieved a local breakthrough because whatever line was protecting it is no longer protecting it. So now they can actually, they've created a gap. Maybe they can exploit that gap. They might be able to come this way or that way and really enable any other unit who might just be flagging or just just in a stalemate. They can't really break through the other lines. Simultaneously, the people on the Giscari side, they're going to see their big edifice falling down. And that's going to be demoralizing because they know somewhere that they are losing. And unless they can actually match something else, like if, if they can get a, a, an objective, then they know that they're losing on this side and winning on this side. Then all it looks like is they're losing. Mm-hmm. And that's demoralizing in battle, especially in medieval battle. 
most of the casualties came in the pursuit phase. So after the lines were broken and one side was running down the other, that's where the casualties happen. And specifically, usually the guys that ended up being the ones that have the most casualties are the units who either don't know that everyone else is overrun or they're the ones that are standing by. They're holding a rear guard action. Mm. Now, the rear guard action, they know it's coming. But a lot of times, especially if you don't know it's coming, then that becomes even more demoralizing. Mm. Um, the, the ancient Greeks said that Phobos is one of the rulers of the battlefield. Yeah. Phobos is one of, one of Ares' sons. He is the god of fear. Yeah. And that panic that just goes through all of the lines... When you see an edifice fall, that's what's being stoked. So Barristan, and Barristan knows this. Barristan's old enough. Barristan's experienced enough. He knows this. That's why he picked the Herodin, besides the obvious thing of now it, it can no longer attack the walls. Because it's, it's so tall, he knows the most number of people will see it. That's a great point. Yeah. yeah. And th- you're, you're right about Phobos, for sure. We've, this has been a major topic for all of these chapters. It's probably the thing we focused on the most is fear and how to manage that and how these different characters manage and deal with it. It's really interesting to see the, the differences between Victorian, Tyrion, Barristan, all the people around them as well, but particularly those three since we're actually in their head. And Barristan, yes, Barristan does more than anyone by far to help people deal with it. Victorian, we don't get his speech, but we can kind of guess that he's more about glory and less about, you know, how to handle it <laughs> emotionally and, and physically and, and uh, handle your fear. Add to something else you said there, you pointed out that everyone is on the edge of panic. Most of these characters, most of these people, if it were real, they would be barely keeping themselves together, a lot of them. So you're right. Like, it, it, you just think about that. If one thing comes to hit them as a negative, like, oh, here's a sign that we're losing. Like, you're barely keeping your yourself in control. Just little things like that are actually pretty big. Uh, when you're on edge, anything can set you off. So the thought that, oh my God, we're losing, that you're already barely controlling your fear. Now you have that to deal with as well. Yeah, and there's, there's I can even give you a great example of this. So in the Battle of Gettysburg, Meredith's Iron Brigade held a, a rear guard action for Reynolds' First Corps, and they were attacked straight on, they took about 75 to 80% casualties, but were able to retreat in good order. Whereas in other times, when enemy enemy units are are flanked, they'll actually start routing at around anywhere from 30 to 40% casualties. So if you know it's coming, you can hold yourself together. But this uncertainty that you don't know what's developing in other parts of the battlefield that causes so much more fear and it essentially reaches this essentially critical route threshold where everyone starts to panic and flee. Yeah. So yeah. And then like you said, most casualties are during this fleeing point, which is why it's so important mm-hmm. not to flee and why it's so important to flee in, in a controlled manner. And we get a perfect example of that in the synopsis. Literally, Barristan attacks the weakest link in the chain, the little pigeons and the herons. They start running away almost immediately. And that's when a lot of the kills are. The red, the little pigeon is killed running away. He falls down running away. He isn't killed in that initial charge. It's right. during the chaos of not an ordered retreat. And of course, those are these soldiers couldn't possibly have been trained like the way you just described because they're they have no experience and they're trained by a person who also doesn't have experience. So of course, and that's of course why Barrison picked that target in the first place, because he, he knew all of this and, or at least, at least strongly suspected this would be the result. And of course he was completely right. Joe Buckley weighs in a little bit here. He says, 
How are they not prepared? They started it. They started throwing the corpses. They had to know there'd be retaliation. But of course, Joe isn't really asking. He's just explaining. He's like, look how unprepared they are. Look how bad they are. Look how unskilled and look how they don't know what they're doing. Well, I mean, they have have an entire unit of stilt soldiers. (laughs) This this is honestly, this is a a complaint I have with this, specifically (laughs) the Giscari arc is that the the antagonists in this arc are so incompetent it goes to the like it goes past the point of believability to farce really and, <laughs> yeah i think George is doing that on purpose but i wonder why oh, I, I agree <laughs> he's doing it on purpose but like i'll be honest a lot of times it it pulls me out of being immersed in these kinds of chapters whereas like uh you know for example the warlocks or the sons of the harpy they, they they're actually somewhat competent and I'm much more engrossed in in these arcs of Danny's chapters because it's like, oh, well, you know, for, for example, when she's in the House of the Undying, I don't know what happens if she, she fails any one of the, the tasks that she does, but I know it's probably not good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but as it's like it's like uh, these uh, these just, you know, this new slavers alliance, it's like uh, I mean, I, I'm honestly impressed that they, they don't drown when it rains because they're looking up and they drown with, you know, like flamingos. <laughs> Like that, that's how that's how silly they are with this 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 you know thirty rotating commanders, which I think was George trying to insp- uh, take. Uh, he was trying to use the uh, the two headedness when two Roman consuls were yeah. in, in charge at the same time. But it's not two now; it's thirty. Yeah, and it's, it's like, like this, that that goes. I mean, I think it's in even in Tyrion's chapters. The the cell swords are just making fun of it. It's like, oh, we, yep. we need to have a chart to find out who's actually in charge today. And yeah, totally. Two other quick points. You you point out the cheering of the Harridan uh, as a as a sign. It's also just like the imagine the defenders on the walls. They they have an even better vantage view of all this, and they're the ones who have been suffering these flying corpses for so long. So the second one of those trebuchets go down, there's like, that's a bunch less flying corpses that we have to deal with just immediately. So that's going to feel good. As for visibility, you point out visibility. This is a big topic here. There's no mention of the dragons in this chapter, which is probably a factor of the synopsis and not... George probably didn't just omit the dragons from this chapter, but it is possible. And the reason why would go to this visibility thing. Like, Barrison doesn't have a lot of opportunity to look up while he's dealing with, there's a million things that could kill him, you know, at yeah. eye level, at ground level. And let's think logistically here. Talk about having a knight's helmet on. A really good example. I did not get into this show, the show Nightfall with a K. I wanted to like it, but I didn't get into it. But I do recommend the first three minutes of it because it starts with a battle scene that's really good. And the point that is relevant here is that it gives you a GoPro, like camera eye view inside a knight's helmet. You're inside their helmet with that little eye slit. And it's pretty neat. And it gives you the idea of what we're talking about here, which is you can't see very much. You, your peripheral vision is gone. You can't see below or above very well. It's really hard. So, of course, so the dragon would not be in sight. That's one thing. Yeah. But also, it just, just goes to show how hard it is to see what's happening in the midst of all this chaos. And I don't know, is that, would that make you more nervous? Just like, yes, this thing is protecting you, but it's also like a, a disadvantage in some ways because of your vision. Like think on the Red Viper versus the Mountain. The Red Viper used that to his advantage. He circled around and circled around and tried to use Gregor's limited sight to his advantage. And it worked. You can usually see that in, in something like a gladiator fight where it's more one-on-one, you usually actually see when they're wearing helmets, they have a, they're a lot more open mm. than they are specifically to get the peripheral vision. 
But I mean, to be honest, you usually will probably, if you have any sort of training when you're a medieval, you will be training in armor, including helmet. So you'll know how to compensate. But yeah, specifically visibility up. Because I mean, it's just like we humans, we don't look up for threats because we've never really had, we've never evolved with aerial predators. There's no rocks or something that are just going to swoop down and grab us. Um, <laughs> no pterodactyls, thankfully, those died out. Yeah. <laughs> so we would that, be looking up if those were. <laughs> that is that is true. But so so it's actually better to make sure you have more protection, especially on your 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 cranial, you know, your right here. I mean, this is a good thick part of your skull, but you definitely don't want to take anything there. Uh, the World War One, the German helmet, they even had a, a Sternpanzer. The Sternpanzer was a plate that went right up here specifically to help protect against sniper fire. So you actually definitely are okay with losing upward visibility when it comes to uh, to your helmets. But yeah, no, having a good nightly helmet, it it would kind of reduce visibility, but also the things that are actually going to kill you are going to be right in front of you. And it's not like anything he can do about the dragons. Like it might be, it takes some real discipline to ignore dragons but like he can't do anything if a dragon wants to yeah. kill him he's he's toast that's it like he can't avoid it yeah. he can't run away like may as well just hopefully hopefully that particular lightning doesn't strike you yeah, um, and if it does land and you know start tearing up some corpses he's gonna see it he'll hear yeah. it and and honestly he knows the dragons like he's probably a little concerned but he knows that yeah. they're more passive when they can eat and they don't they're not going to go attack a living creature when there's just dead flesh there to eat so he, he probably has a better understanding yeah. than most about the way they could impact this battle. That said, <laughs> that said, something's going to happen that's yeah. going to add to the chaos, something that's very difficult to predict that directly affects the dragons, and that's the Hellhorn. Clearly, the Hellhorn hasn't blown at the end of this chapter, but the way it affected people at the King's Move, this is somewhat unprecedented in terms of how we can imagine it affecting a battle, because it's pretty hard to imagine something in a battle that just a sound wave, let's imagine it as like a sonic boom that just Almost everyone in the battlefield is going to be impacted by it. Maybe. Let's assume that is true. Maybe I'm exaggerating. But I think that's true. Let, setting aside what the dragons do in response to it, can you conceive of what, like a wave, a sound wave, like a paralyzing wave, everyone's ears going crazy? Like, how might that affect someone that's in the midst of swinging their sword and trying to stay alive? And it's really difficult for me to understand that, let alone the people. We've also got horses and camels and elephants and the dragons. So... I don't know if you can make sense of all that, but I'd love to get a take from you on, on what well, this might do. As I understand it, there are there are sonic weapons in development specifically for riot control. Oh. I don't know exactly how good they are. I know some there's jokes in engineering classes about a brown note cannon. Um, <laughs> but um, I mean, I, I do. That's what the horn did. <laughs> I mean, th- that's not really something that I study too often uh, when it comes to uh, new developments in weaponry. But uh, I do believe there are they're always trying to find things that are really painful but cause little damage. But, uh, I mean, first off, we have to guess how far is this this going to travel? The King's Moot was, I mean, a big gathering, but it was still relatively localized compared to a large battle across a city. So maybe it will only be in a localized area, but, I mean, it could. But, I mean, it's also magic, and magic doesn't necessarily have to follow the rules of physics. And, in fact, it specifically True. usually doesn't. Yeah, that's so, kind of the point, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it could localized on the beach. It could actually just bring people to their knees. It could make them vomit. It could make them, I mean, it, it could do all, it might be a brown note cannon. I mean, it, it could, <laughs> Hey, he, he makes that reference that everybody poops before their first battle. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, you know, it, it almost really, I mean, it, could also just be a sort, some sort of magical fear and command. I mean, this is a, a horn of command, so it, it might. Yeah. Well, well, it doesn't actually c- 
command them per se. It stops them from what they're doing, as in their their brain sort of shuts off a little bit. They can't so ignore it, it. That's for sure. Yeah. Right. So it's entirely possible. I mean, and again, we we have there's other things. I mean, the elephants might go berserk when yeah. we hear that elephants famously went berserk. Usually, that was exposed to fire, which is why the Romans they would cover pigs in pitch and then they would send them <laughs> against elephants because the the squeal of a pig of the high-pitched sound and the fire causes elephants to go berserk well they, we're definitely they, gonna see flaming in we've already got an example of a flaming horse and, and it, this speaks to our not looking up example as well yeah. in, in Tyrion's chapter there was a cell sword or two that got hit by a flying corpse that had already been ignited by a dragon and the, and then that horse was lit yeah. so that could be foreshadowing for bigger burning like imagine a burning elephant just r- rampaging we kind of saw that already with a mammoth mm. north of the wall so that would just be yet another parallel but yeah but yeah they would just overrun anything i mean they they don't try to run over it's, it's actually interesting elephants don't actually run over like if they're rampaging they will be a little bit less uh but uh, with elephants aren't you actually see them trying to negotiate things that are around them but uh when they're rampaging they'll probably just try to be knocking people so i mean you'll have people flying like bowling pins these with these war elephants and i mean that was part of the problem when you had war elephants is if they went crazy they would just stampede through your side they'll be i mean i i trust if if gurn wants to include that it's going to be really cool it's going to be really well written that's something to look forward to is if we do have a, a rampaging elephant, he will probably make note of it and it will probably be pretty cool. I want Vic, <laughs> I, I want Victorian to say it because he's well, I mean, he's so dim that I have a feeling he would have an amazingly stupid metaphor for it. <laughs> he, he's got his poetic moments. Yeah, I want to see. He really does. Too. Yeah, <laughs> he really does. So a flaming elephant is a pretty good segue to the role of chaos in a battle because we're talking about unpredictable things. And, mm-hmm. and in this kind of battle, there's just so many other elements. There's more unpredictability, even if we feel like we have a handle on who's going to win. There's so many things that could happen in the process of winning that could really change a lot or be really interesting or things that we couldn't think of. So the role of chaos in a battle, we've, we've already touched on it a lot. It's, it's one of the core elements of, of battle, but this battle perhaps is even more chaotic. Miscommunication and mistakes are not uncommon in modern warfare when there's advanced communication devices with you know radios, messaging devices, etc., direct communication even. Here we have things like horns and loud voices, and those are useful. They're better than nothing, but they often don't suffice. I mean, you sometimes can't even tell what direction the horn came from. Sometimes you can't even tell what direction you're facing. You get all turned around. There's blood, there's enemies, there's friends, and you don't know which way is is south Mm -hmm. or north, which is why we get into things like visual anchors, battle standards, or that. So this says flaws too. None of these solutions are perfect, but let's talk about standards, their role in battle, not just in reducing chaos, but in helping create organization. And just in general, let's, let's talk about reducing chaos and battle standards and things like that. So when it comes to formations, you want to make sure that your, your orders are enacted and they're enacted when you want them to. So that's why you, use, you can use flags and uh, when visibility is bad, you can also use horns, especially for, for night ambushes. It's you do horns to actually signal the, the start of the charge. Like at uh, Deepwood Mock. Correct. Yeah. And, and if this has always been, this has been a problem for war since really since the, you know, the development of organized warfare. A lot of times what they do is they, they try to use multiple standards 
And then they can, for example, the term flagship, the reason why it was called a flagship was that it was the, the signal ship. They'd run the flag, they'd run the, the order up the flagpole, and then every ship that saw it would run the same flag up the flagpole. So that way, everyone in the Navy could see, because if, even if they didn't have if they didn't, they didn't have visibility with the flagship, they had visibility usually with other ships. And so if everybody knew what order was going, then they could all go and at the very least be in a unified, coherent front. Sort of like a used. chain of command, a visual chain of command, yeah. Correct. And then it would be the same thing. I mean, for example, if they say we're going to be flying, we'll be flying the blue and the black flag if we're doing this. Then the, the the command unit, they'll fly the blue and the black flag. All of the other signal units, when they see that, they will also fly the blue and the black flag. And that's why you have when you have more than one, it increases the chance that you'll notice your flag. Mm. And then you know, you'll you'll ride the the blue and the black flag, and you, then you'll see you know, for example, the Kingsguard flag or the Daenerys flag or whoever, and you know, all right, we're good. That uh, that unit for one is not overrun. And for two is giving the order. Now we know what to do. And then now the chaos is a little bit lessened because we have an objective to reach. Just as we were saying before, when you have the collapse of the Herodin, the fact of the matter is if the command unit is still flying the flag, then they know, then you know the command unit is all right. The command unit is not overrun. The command unit is still fighting. And if they're fighting, I'm fighting too. Yeah. And that's also a great segue because the standard, the battle standard in this case, and in a lot of cases, it represents that leader. When they see that standard, they're not just seeing the standard of Queen Daenerys. They're not just seeing the three-headed dragon. They know Barristan the Bold is there. And that gives them heart. He's their leader. He's the reason they're there. He's part of the reason that, I mean, he's literally leading them. He's not leading from behind. That's a good segue to discuss how a good leader can mitigate a lot of this. He can mitigate chaos. He can mitigate fear. Yeah. They can mitigate stuff like that. We already talked about some of it. The speech before the battle is a big part of that. So is Barristan's lifetime reputation having been built up over the course of his whole, uh, his whole career. And that is fully in play as the men following him are following that reputation, which he has reproven we'll speak to that again in a minute but since he's gotten to marine but the legend followed him all the way from westeros so let's talk about that the value of experience the value of following a man that has proven himself over and over and how that can just add so much to the people following him yeah well i mean obviously leadership is a complicated topic and there have been many many books written about leadership but one of the things i think of when i think of a good leader is someone who can unify the people under his leadership into a single purpose. And one of the ways that Barristan can do that is to call on his experience and says, I've been here before. I understand you. There is empathy between leader and subordinate. A lot of leaders do this. They say, you know, I've been in the trenches just like you. I, you know, we're all struggling together, sort of, uh, sort of thing. You know, everything is bad, but we're all in this together. And that's a unifying message, especially if you're dealing with, I mean, a lot of these freedmen have for most of their life, their leadership has been the pampered slave master, you know, telling them to do something and the overseer whips them if they don't do it fast enough. They've never really experienced good leadership at all until maybe Danny and Barristan or something like that. Yeah. So the fact of the matter is Danny and Barristan are taking on risk, especially Barristan. Barristan's leading from the front. He has the same risk 
that uh, any one of these other that uh, the Red Lamb or Tukmo or Tumco are experiencing. So that gives them purpose because they know that they're not just being abandoned. I mean, I know uh, Hannibal did that in the Battle of Kinney, where he put himself in the in the center unit that was going to have the most struggle. Where just said, "Yes, we're all. We, this is the riskiest part, but but I'm here. I'm I'm not." going to leave you to die. You're not being sacrificed for my glory. And then uh, to counter that in uh, the Battle of the Upper Betis, I think, no, Battle of Upper, I can't remember the name of the actual battle, uh, Hasdrubal tried the same thing, but the Romans, because partially because Hasdrubal was not there, were able to split the lines and not be encircled. So you can kind of see the the uh, compare and contrast, whereas if Barristan is saying, look, you know, we're all in this together, and you notice his 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 guys do okay. Now they also hit chumps, so they probably would, <laughs> they probably wouldn't have. Though, right? That's part. They, of- <laughs> oh yeah. Well, no. That, well, that's. I mean, that's just a solid tactical decision. You yeah, always yeah. want to. You always want to hit. You know, it's like uh, what was I think it was in actually in the show where they said uh, he, he only fights people that haven't that don't fight back. And he's like, well, that does seem easier, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. There's no reason to take on their strongest foes when you can just yeah. take on their and, weakest. And especially, too, that's a phalanx. You do not want to hit a phalanx head on. You actually want to flank a phalanx. So if he is able to, for example, break the herons and then use his cavalry to move around and hit the phalanx on the sides, that's where they're weakest. I mean, that was the Macedonian phalanx's weakness, the... Uh, I mean, Alexander was one of the greatest troops in the world, uh, one of the greatest generals in the world. But if you hit a Macedonian phalanx on its side, you had a pretty good chance of coming out ahead, even trying to split through that uh, that phalanx. Yeah, it's true that. <laughs> yeah, no, and that that's important. Barristan is no chump when it comes to military tactics. And that part of that's his, his experience. Part of that's also Westerosi uh, boys are educated in the military sciences. He knows the value of formation. He knows where to attack. He knows how to attack. So the fact that that's also something that his men can take, take into their, uh, take in, take confidence in. It's not like, again, these, uh, these slavers, they're doing all sorts of stupid stuff and they've never been in a war and they've never studied war. Yeah. (laughs) At at, At best, they maybe cursory studied it on passing whim, not a Barristan, that was what he was expected to do. I believe he was actually the heir of House Selmy before he, he joined the, the yes. Kingsguard. <laughs> so he would have been expected and educated to have led the armies of House Selmy when his father got too old. Yep. His father, Arstan, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Barristan's uh, yeah. a great warrior, but not the most creative guy. Yeah. <laughs> no. But uh, yes, uh, that's, that's, well, that's really well said. And also, to add, let me add to that, um, He's with the point you made about empathizing with uh, his men is really important. And it's something that coming back to Tyrion and Victorian, something they don't know how to do. Victorian doesn't know how to empathize with his men. He's just like, be a man or die. That's kind of his attitude. You know, <laughs> like you either you either meet the challenge or you die. He doesn't, there's not a lot of empathy in that. And Tyrion is too full of fear himself. He doesn't understand this. He's almost like, he's actually sort of anti-empathetic towards Penny. He's trying to like, why aren't you as afraid as me, afraid as I am? You know, and it's like, well, really, does she need to be as afraid of you as you are? Is that really helpful to her right now? So so that's not, he's trying, that's almost anti-empathetic uh, in some ways. But um, one thing I really want to point to is about the value of experience. It's like the second line of this synopsis is that Barrison says he knows he's going to, the fear of battle is going to be replaced by what is he, what has it worded? Uh, the feeling will go away when time slows down in the chaos of battle. Now that's something that 
it's weird to almost weird to say that like he's going to he he can re- take stock in the fact that oh I won't be afraid I'll just be in the middle of battle <laughs> but it's like that just sounds almost like somewhat contradictory but that's something that comes from experience that his other men that's something they can't take stock in they can't say oh I know how I'm going to feel later in the battle because they've never felt they've never had a later in the battle in their life this is their first battle so they don't know that thing and that's something that I think is really important. Yeah. Uh, it's it's familiar to yeah. Barristan. And 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 that is something, and this is, I mean, I, I spoke about it a little before. This is what I love that George R. R. Martin does. He adrenaline is euphoric. It it, it just is. It, it it creates a sort of an effect on people. And some people, you know, they call them adrenaline junkies for a reason because they like to chase, chase this feeling. But Barristan is getting excited. It he's not, oh yes, now I get to kill people, but he understands that there's going to be a thrill to battle. And it's not, he's not portrayed as a monster. I, I hate this in, in fiction when they write the military character who, if, if they're not, if at any moment they're not, they're not saying war is absolute hell and I don't want to be in battle ever. It's not true. It, it really isn't. And the fact of the matter is, is that, I mean, and George R. R. Martin, his experience was he was a conscientious subjector during Vietnam. Yeah. So, so he, he takes the, the experience that he hear, heard from people in, for example, the Second World War. There was a great line from a book in the Second World War. I know Dan Carlin used it in his uh, a Supernova in the East chapter, but he said, does nobody could understand how we could hate it and yet miss it so much? Mm. And, and it's a really good line. And there's a lot of lines in there of things that essentially don't make the papers and a, a lot of terrible stuff. And then there was a lot of camaraderie and there was a lot of living in the moment you know it's like the next bottle of booze the next sunrise the next bath all of that was wonderful because you having been absolved of a future you could live entirely in the present there is and, a lot of uh let me throw one example in that i've i heard just from my own experience i've read about a, a man i wish i could remember his name he was a, a, a british officer world war one era uh i think it was world war one might have been world war two it doesn't it's not super important which one it was he had an enormous number of permanent injuries. He missing a hand, missing an eye, missing a leg, and people. And, and he would, but he would say, "I quite enjoyed war." You know, like it's a weird way to say it. Some of that's just the time, you know, the era that he said that in. And it, you could, it's easy to take that statement out of context and be like, "Oh, he enjoyed killing." I doubt that no. much. I doubt it was the no. killing that he liked. No, uh, but it really says a lot. He lost so like so much of his own body, and that had to hurt. Obviously, he suffered that pain, but still, despite that, he yep. still says something along the lines of what you're saying here. Yeah, and Ernst Jünger said that too in *A Storm of Steel*. Uh, mm. That that was a World War One book, and I recommend it for anyone. It's actually one of my most prized possessions because my grandfather gave it to me when I joined up. And so this is not just Barristan's experience, though. He's not just a good leader. He's not just an experienced leader. He's a living legend. He's not a braggart. He's he is a little proud. He knows he's great, but it's earned confidence, not just attitude or arrogance. So that's huge because that is something that the men can follow as well a little bit. They know that this living legend is leading them, even though he's older. He's proven it, though. He's proven he still has the ability, right? Like, this guy, he killed Kraz. He killed Marrow with a stick. Remember what Jorah said? He said, this is a quote, Sir Jorah gave the old man a long look. A squire with a stick slew Marrow of Bravos? Is that the way of it? Yeah, Jorah's reaction probably wasn't all that different from so many other people's like really he did what that's damn impressive so we got a question from eric forg uh from patreon which is right on topic here rather than just leaders in general like 
yeah, there's good leaders, there's there's quality leaders, but this is a living legend. How do you think that changes the picture, like from the soldier's point of view, the men following him, maybe the ones who do have a little experience, but also the ones who don't? What do you think it means to them to follow a living legend rather than just like someone that they can trust? Is there a big difference there? Well, I mean, you can definitely guess that most, if not everyone, would have judged Barristan Selmy by his cover. He's the book that they're judging by his by its cover. He's, yeah. old. I mean, he's old. It's like he's a squire. It's like <laughs> a squire, and you're you're how old now? So, but then you, when he actually, you know, he he proves he has the chops when he he does impressive deed after impressive deed, and it really does. It, it um, for one, it's just like almost these people are like, what is he capable of? <laughs> if he can do this at eighty, you know, however old he is, you know, he might be a century old, and he's still <laughs> he's still just wrecking faces. And it's like, what what could what is he not capable of? And that's that's inspiring in its own way because it's it's a lot like a the an actual heroic example, like with Euron. Euron specifically tries to attack people where they're strongest. That's why he attacks Victorian's masculinity is because it says, well, if he can hit me where I'm strongest, what can't, what can he do? You know, what, what, what can't he do? Whereas with Barristan, it's much more heroic and inspiring. He's able to defeat these people at 80. What can't he do? And that's inspiring for for these people. And and it gives a lot of support to Daenerys as well, because it's like this legendary warrior swears himself to her service. He's a man who's seen people that could he could in you know swear service to. And he's not cynical at all. He's swearing his service proudly. But uh yeah, it's it's I really like the fact that I would have loved to have seen when somebody would realize, oh man, what can't this old man do? <laughs> that I would think would have been really spectacular to see this this realization when someone says he, he's not bluffing at yeah. all maybe we get that from Tyrion. there's a chance Tyrion gives us that point of view i don't think victorian would but Tyrion i think Tyrion, i think Tyrion's too well read he might yeah he might be too he, he, he's too, like, too like, scared <laughs> yeah it, I, I just i just think Tyrion's like no no this is the guy who basically soloed duskendale so <laughs> yeah right <laughs> I, I, I i think yeah, I, I don't think Tyrion would be the one that's too cynical. Um, I think it, if it would have been anybody, it would have been one of the younger Kingsguard. Yeah. Not Balon Swan. Balon no. Swan, Balon Swan would know better. Eris Hardcart would know better, but yeah. like uh, <laughs> Preston, Preston Greenfield or something oh, like yeah. that. I mean, he's dead, but you know. So uh, that's a good segue too. I, I have two questions for you. One for now and one uh, in a minute. First of all, like, do you, do you have any fights that you think you're either hoping happen or maybe expect to happen? And, and you mentioned Ariel Hota and Balan Swan, and that's part of what, what fits so well here because Hota in his chapter, he thinks how he might end up fighting Ares Oakheart and how it will go. And it pretty much goes almost exactly how he predicts. He's got this sort of same sort of not arrogant, confidence but it's extremely confident and then it proves itself he's like yep that wasn't really didn't seem that hard it didn't seem like okar gave him much of a challenge then he sees bail and swan and he's like i might fight him too and it won't be as easy now that may or may not actually happen it feels like it could be foreshadowing given the first one was barristan on the other hand the guy he seems to want to fight most of all is bloodbeard and i kind of hope that happens do you think that one might happen or something else um, some other epic fight that I you think, might be hoping for? I, I honestly think it will solely because of Grolio. Oh, he is mad about Grolio. Yeah, Bloodbeard tossed the head. Yeah, good point. It's yep. personal for him. Yeah, yeah. So, so I really think that. And I think that's just, it's a little, I mean, George doesn't always like to give us the romantic gimme. 
He doesn't always like to do that, but I think he's going to give it to give it to this one to kind of answer for for Grolio. Yeah, because all Grolio wanted to do was go home. Yeah, that's true. Good point. You know, I had never thought of Grolio in that. I know that blood like Barrison hated Bloodbeard right away, yeah. partly because he recognized the kind of man he is. He's seen that type of guy before. Yeah. And yeah, that's, that's I, an interesting yeah. question, too. Uh, are there, is there anything else you're looking to, forward to the rest of this battle um, outside of this one or in addition to that? It's, not really, only because, like, I don't really, there's nobody really on the opposite side who I think is actually credible enough to actually challenge anybody. Okay, um, that makes sense. And, 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 you know, the only one who would be would probably be Brown Ben Plum. And we already know he's turning cloak. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> I like Brown Ben Plum. He's a lot of fun. You know, it's yeah. like, yeah, it's, it's like there's not really any, I mean, I mean again, the, you know that that goes to the amount of these slavers are basically farce. Yeah, it's like uh, you know they're not gonna you're not gonna have any cool fights. If if there is going to be a cool fight, I want to have it like Barristan versus six dudes, Ooh. kind of kind of doing a uh, what's his name uh, Garland Tyrell yes, moment there. Yes. <laughs> so I it, it, so rather than any one specific person, I think if I want wanted a cool feat, I just want Barristan sell me to accomplish something really cool. Nice. Not necessarily against a particular person. Nice, nice. Okay, so related question to our topic of how it feels to follow a man like that. Let's turn that around. What's it like to have that guy coming at you? Like, yeah, you've heard he's old, but like when he's got that dragon helm on and he's on his horse with that bloody sword and the battle standards and his men behind him and he's charging at you and he's way out in front of his men because he's so ready to go. Like, you're not thinking about how old he is. <laughs> you're thinking, nope. uh-oh. And you, with that, and like that, I said, that bloody sword, you know, coming at you. You don't need deep symbolic an- analysis to grasp, as you said. The youngest are screwed. I mean, yeah. they're, pr- they're pretty much going to be done as a, as a fighting fan. They may still be a political force. They may still have some money to influence here and there, but they're probably, their role in the story is probably ending around this time, around the end of this battle. Yeah. No, so I, I think, I think like that's the... Face down, Barristan, coming at you. Like, whoa. Talk hey, you remember fear. the you remember the broken man speech? Yes. Basically, basically that. Ooh. <laughs> good point. Oh wow. Yeah, because it's like this huge man way coming at you and you barely yeah. have the weapons and you're you've already lost your friends mm. and you're 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 hungry and tired. That's a that's a really good answer, Jim. <laughs> that's a yeah, really no, good the answer. uh the the thing is is that Barristan, it's all it's almost interesting. Barristan is in fact almost turning himself into a symbol. In when, when he suits up, he's got the silver, he's got the golden filigree on, you know, the shining white plate. He's, he's not a man anymore. I mean, you could probably barely see any actual skin on him. Right. Yeah. Uh, the old, that's why I said the oldness, his age is irrelevant at that point. You can't yeah, tell. Yeah. It's, it's almost a lot like the, the ghost of Renly in, in that way. Yeah. It's just, I mean, and, and there's a lot of really good stuff about symbolism and it's done in, in movies and it's done in video games about people legendary warriors or something when they take off the armor they're you know when they take off the armor they're the person but when they put on the armor they're the legend and usually we always focus on you know the man that when they take off the armor and they become the man because that does you know good character work and things like that but let's not forget when they put it on they become a legend yeah and that sort of legendary thing that's the counterpoint it's whereas when Barristan is just in his, you know, his Kingmaker or his uh, Queen's Guard chapters, he's just a guy, and we could we deal with his, you know, his insecurities, his inexperience, and his sexual repression. But when he puts on that armor, he's basically just a war god. 
Yes, he's Ares without the without the without the uh, the anger. <laughs> Achilles without the without the uh, arrogance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's like Kukulain or anything like yeah. that. He's more, of a, he's more of a force of nature than he is. I mean, it's it's like you know, it's like you know, I got to go and fight against Barrist and sell me. It's like, oh, cool, cool. I'm just gonna go fight a tornado. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I mean, I have the same chance. Yeah, I and, basically have the same chance. And that's part of what gives him his confidence. Yes, he's not an arrogant guy, but he's not dumb. He knows that his he knows that his foes know who he is. And he's not he's gonna make a little use of his reputation. Like, yeah, they're gonna be a little afraid of me. He doesn't say that, but he knows it. Because <laughs> he's he knows too much about fear and battle and how all that works to not be to not be aware of that. And so, yeah. And that's part of why, like, it works when he charges ahead like that and he's like, I want to hit them first. You might think, why don't, like, he strikes them, and he's the first one there, and there's, like, a bunch of them. Why don't they surround him and quickly and kill him before his friends get there? Well, that's because they're terrified. They see his friends charging. They're not going to, they're not thinking, they're not strategically planning. They're like, holy crap, here comes a mass of charging horses. Who Like, the fact that one of them is ahead of all the others only makes it scary. It's not like, ooh, let's get that guy who got too far ahead. No, that's, they're not that cold with their analysis in the heat of battle, especially because these guys are, rookies basically they're slave soldiers who probably haven't even fought in a battle before led by the little pigeon or whoever and it's just like that doesn't give you confidence it's the opposite of the confidence barrison inspires <laughs> it's like we have this guy leading us uh-oh <laughs> yeah, well heavy cavalry is basically a tank anyway do you really think anything the, the little uh the, the pigeons or the herons are gonna do right yeah. i mean they're, they're, i mean they probably don't even have I mean, I'd be surprised if any of them have any really good weaponry. It's just going to bounce off the plate. Mm, so, yeah. I mean, he—they're they're doomed. They're doomed. I mean, and I mean, we could tell that they were doomed because, again, you're walking around on stilts, really. Uh, yeah. But, but uh, <laughs> e- even yes. if they, even if they were pretty much anybody that's not like you know the cell swords that actually have decent armor, decent weapons, and things like that, anybody that Barristan's going to go against is just going to be destroyed. Yeah. There's a line, of course, there's that great line with the red lamb killing the little pigeon. I came for blood, not gold. That kind of, you know, this is a, this is a synopsis, but I have, a, I have a strong feeling that's a direct quote. Like that, That's word for word. That's yeah, the kind of thing word. that George, like, looked at the audience and said it, like, projected it, you know? <laughs> and everybody went, yeah, you know, that's the kind of thing. It was like, I'm getting that word for word. So, yeah, I bet that's a direct quote. I'm with you there. The good example of something that Brienne, we learned from Brienne's chapter where she says, all that training in the yard, or her, her master at arms teacher, like all that training in the yard is nothing if you hesitate in battle. Well, the red lamb did not hesitate. <laughs> so that's, yeah. that's nice. But the bigger point perhaps is the, the symbolism of the blood splatter uh, coming from the, the little pigeon that goes all over the horse and, and Barristan. You don't, isn't necessarily symbolic, but I wonder if this is just to show like how covered in blood Barrison is, you know, metaphorically, but it could also be a sign of his death. Like maybe he's going to die. I don't think he's going to die in this battle, but his, his death might be coming soon one way or another. Same goes for Danny's horse who was brought into this battle. And maybe the horse is sort of an afterthought now that Danny has Drogon, uh, her new mount. So what do you, what do you think about Barristan? Do you think he'll survive to see Westeros? Where do you fall on that theory? See, that, I've, I've always been tough on that. For one, I, I mean, you know, I don't like to do predictions too much just yeah. because it's just not something I, I mean, I, I do do some speculation, but it's, it's not really uh, the nitty gritty. But uh, I right think, on. I think he's going to survive this battle. I actually think that the red lamb doing that 
is actually nothing to do with Barristan himself. It's the Red Lamb's baptism, is what I think Ooh, that is. Okay. So now he is actually the Red Lamb. He <laughs> called himself the Red Lamb before, but now he actually is the Red Lamb. Yeah. Point. So I, I think, uh, I think the silver will. I mean, I think the silver, if the silver's too symbolic, I think to to just be killed by some rando in the, uh, you know, some random spear thrust in this battle. And I think it's too important. It's it's got to die. If it's going to die, then it's going to die. You know, at, at Westeros. Where perhaps you know, uh, as a as a sort of symbolic thing, perhaps maybe whether it's where whether Danny turns from the the Iron Throne to fight the others, or uh, it, it blows up in King's Landing. Or well, one idea I'm having right now is maybe it could symbolize her break with her relationship with the Dothraki. Like she has a strong relationship with them. They could be about to join her in full, as she's the mayor who mounts the world, et cetera. And maybe yeah. like the death of the silver, kind of she has a. I don't know, a break from them, some sort of problem. Yeah. I don't know, maybe a... Well, if the, or, or if the Dothraki die, if, if King's Landing blows up. Oh, sure, yeah, maybe the, they just... The silver could die there as well. Some sort of... If awful, she bequeaths yeah. it to a blood rider or something like that. One theory Someone that we heard in the previous episode was that Drogon will eat the silver. I'm like, whoa. Ooh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a little too... That, that's, a, that's raw. I mean, that's don't even... dark, right? <laughs> but it's also possible that the silver ends up being like... Uh, what's the horse from the Wheel of Time? Bella? Yeah, the one who just who just survives everything. everything it's like, yeah. huh? <laughs> I agree. Huh. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. And you, um, you and Nina had a discussion in the document here about, and and you guys weren't the only one who caught this. I'm glad to see this. I missed it, and when you pointed it out, I was like, oh, of course. So this horse, another Lord of the Rings reference, huh? Oh yeah, Shadowfax. Yep. Yes. Yep. <laughs> in Lord of the Rings, Gandalf gets ahead on Shadowfax, runs way ahead of the army, strikes the first blow. Yep. The sun is in their eyes, just like here. Yep. It's a silver horse. Is it silver? Yeah, it's silver horse, and it's a white-haired man, an old guy, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but he's leading the battle, so that is yeah, that's a hundred percent. To be fair, George really loves his Lord of the Rings references. He does, and <laughs> he really does. We we love to point them out. I, I love. I like to say that we point out lots of Lord of the Rings references during Valeritas, but there are surely many more that we miss because there's. Oh yeah, well <laughs> we couldn't. I mean, to, to be fair, I mean George grew up with J.R. Tolkien as a significant influence. So as, as opposed yeah. to us, we, we we just we like both book book series. Yeah, it was. Or, it was it's, it's, it's it's just a lot stronger for him, and also you know he's a writer, so yeah. he he has he has the ability to seed that in there. True that. So I agree with you that he'll survive the battle. Setting aside other predictions of what may or may not happen, one thing that I think is a pretty reasonable prediction, assuming he survives, is that he's going to look real heroic. Like a living legend does something else legendary. We have to give we have to give ourselves a lot of leeway with perspective here because while we're sitting here talking about how silly the slavers are and how automatic this outcome in t- terms of who's going to win, not necessarily the nitty-gritty of who lives and who dies, but in terms of Dragon Queen's side beating the Yunkish, no question really there. So I think building on that, given that Barrison will look like a huge hero to the rank and file, to the people who don't see things through the reader's point of view, because to them, it looks like, ooh, this is a touch and go. We could lose here. This is dangerous. We could all die of plague. The dragons could kill us. Who knows? They just don't know. They don't have our perspective. They don't see who has plot armor like we do, things like that. So the fact that Barrison could become an even bigger hero, this is, I think, an interesting potential plot point because 
being a hero isn't always a great thing. Like, this is a guy who led the Queen's armies through plague and dragons and invaders and civil strife. Hey, there's our four horsemen of the apocalypse again. And he won and presumably survived it all and is wins all this acclaim. He's not thinking about glory. He's not thinking about, oh, they're going to love me when I win. That's just not the way his mind works. So it, it, maybe we don't think about that. But there's major political consequences to being a big hero sometimes, right? Like people who have political goals, they don't want the hero figure interfering. Skahas, perhaps, is an example of that. You don't want to... There's like Belisarius is a historical example, I think, of someone who was a really successful general that the they didn't like. The emperor was unhappy with how successful well, he was, how popular yeah, there was, he was. Yeah, he was suspicious. Um, right. another, another person that could be frightful, not, not necessarily of his absolute political consequences, but the fact of the matter is he could be a potential rival would be Victorian. Oh, yes, 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 because Victorian is on their side right now. So right. But, if, but <laughs> if, if he says, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to bring back the most beautiful woman in the world, what if this old man says no and she yeah. listens to him? <laughs> and of course, I mean, I don't think Victorian's surviving very long. He's got, he's got so many death flags on him. It's that's actually going to replace the Krakens on his ship. Um, <laughs> yeah. And his arm is currently like slowly incinerating him, whatever that is. I don't even know. Yeah. But yeah, it's just, just right sort of weirdness, that. but, but it, it's entirely possible. I mean, again, just the threat that, 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 or the idea of the threat of someone is enough to, to cause people to rash action. I mean, the shave pate could be thinking, Hey, maybe, maybe we have to worry about this, but yeah. I mean, it could be, it could be anything. Yes. And, um, you know, I mean, we already see, I mean, we were talking about, you know, how the political status, we saw what happens when Barristan's realizing, hey, you know, the worst Kingsguard are the ones that play the Game of Thrones. It's like, but I also stood by and look what happened here in Marine. Yeah. So, you know, he's, it's, it's another another trope that uh, George is kind of lancing is the idea that all pa- uh, all people, that the only good leaders are the ones that don't want any power. Mm-hmm. And, and stuff like that, where it's like, you know, in, in action and not wanting to do anything has its own problems, too. You have yes. to eva- evaluate the totality of the character. Ned Stark. Is and, and that's just how it is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, of course, we've drawn a lot of comparisons with Barristan and Ned, and this is just another yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, it's just, you know, you, if you evaluate the character, you know, you have to see, or, you know, and, you know, I mean, he's he loves his great characters, too, and his, his flawed characters who have strengths and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, just, I mean, Damon Blackfire and Daron the Second. I mean, we've we had a whole thing on that. We sure but, did, and we're about to I think, go back. I think, there. I think had what seven things on that. Seven. <laughs> yes, we had a lot of things. So yeah, so I that's one way I'm a little quote unquote worried about Barris, and I do kind of assume he's going to die at some point. So it's not like worry; it feels somewhat inevitable. But I feel like this is his hero's newly gained or at least increased hero status could be. Uh, a problem for someone like Skahas. We're looking for think reasons for yeah. why Skahas might assassinate Barristan and that might, this might be it. Or yeah, or anything to subvert uh, Danny's mission. I mean, it could yeah. be Makoro. Yeah. Just just as easily as it could be uh, anybody. It could, anybody that wants to guide Danny away from anything else might see Barristan as a potential threat. Yes. Uh, even Tyrion, although I doubt Tyrion is going to assassinate Barristan. Yeah, that's still like would, yeah. that's still, but but uh, more on Tyrion in a minute. But it would be a really dark twist too for his ending to be for a knight of the Kingsguard who spent his life protecting the royal family or various royal families against assassinations to him for him to be assassinated because of politics. That is just that's uh, real meta and dark. Yeah. Speaking of the Ironborn again, this is a really interesting connection and thinking of what Barristan says. His line at the end is really telling uh, to show how little he knows. 
about what's happened in the West. And this isn't just him. Danny is right there. Danny, all these things that Barrison is expressing ignorance in regards to, is that Theon, you know, is what he's thinking? Or wait, Balon, Theon, wait, what's going on here? And then he thinks about the Starks and, and all that. And Joffrey, like Joffrey's dead, right? He, it's just a reminder. It's hard. It's almost like, wait, that's right. Danny and Barristan don't even know Joffrey's dead. Like that happened a while ago. They don't even know about the Red Wedding, y'all. Like that's, it's almost shocking to hear that, but it's like, yeah, they yeah. really don't know anything about this. And of course, Tyrion knows all of this. This is something we briefly entertained talking about here as a, as a main topic, but really we're going to save the things Tyrion, the Tyrion and Daenerys conversations that are coming is something we're going to probably do a whole episode yeah. on because it's so big, but just we're going to briefly touch on it here and then do, do a deeper dive later. But as far as it pertains here, that's pretty huge, huh? Barristan's and it's clever, too, by George, have, having George reveal this during a battle, of all things, to remind yeah. us of, of that. Yeah. And uh, Yeah, Barristan, the one place yeah. where Barristan can't parse everything together. So it's like, yeah, wait, wait, why would the Starks send us against... <laughs> like, that doesn't make any sense if the Starks were trying to be independent. There wouldn't be any, any worry about that. But it's like, well, no, you, you don't have time to, to piece all this together, Barristan. You're not sitting in a room. Yeah. <laughs> so he doesn't even know, like, he thinks of Theon, and he doesn't know yeah. that what's happened to Theon. He doesn't know about the King's moot, but he does, he does actually know about Victorian. He's got experience. Let's, if we think back, a lot of y'all may have forgotten that Barristan was one of the commanders in the war against Balon's first rebellion. So he is very well experienced in fighting them and knows what they're all about. Like yep. he knows Victorian was yeah, the he's guy who the fleet. Uh, Lannisport rather. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was the commander of Oldwick. So he was a senior leader and it's like, so he knows that, you know, the, the Ironborn are, 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 he knows exactly what they're capable of and what they're not capable of. And the fact of the matter is, you know, the, Balon lost and Balon lost pretty overwhelmingly, but it's like, you know, the, the, I mean, as he, as he says, you know, they're the hammer and we're the anvil. The, the long ships are an incredible mobility element yeah. when it comes to, to, to war. So it's the fact of the matter is, is that they can break them on the men that are, have uh, sallied from the walls of Marine. Good point. And here's another just overview of what has changed in Westeros. This is a good take from uh, our, our Joe Buckley. He, he wrote, he witnessed the great change that was Robert's Rebellion, but when you get down to it, that actually only swapped places of two houses. Everyone else has always been where they've always been, pretty much. In other words, House Baratheon is still in the Stormlands and all that. House Lannister is still the West, etc., but now, <laughs> that's not so true anymore. House Baratheon nearly has abandoned the Stormlands. Stannis is at the Wall, which is going to really blow his mind. Uh, the Tyrells are halfway on the Iron Throne, which maybe won't be too big of a surprise given the way things were going before. Yeah. But it is a big change. Peter Baelish is sort of ruling the Vale. That's not going to make him feel good. He's not a fan of Baelish, even though he's not fully yeah. aware of just how bad Baelish is. He's he's like Ned, where he suspects this guy is really bad, even without. Well, Ned yeah. did finally. Yeah, Baelish is a kingmaker at this point. He's got <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> two. He's got essentially de facto control of two of the regions of Westeros because he has the Riverlands as well. Although, uh, what's his name? Emin Emin Frey. Is thinking, I, I have, I have, I have my paper, <laughs> and everyone's like, "Go home, you're drunk." This oh. conversation, this part of it, totally sounds like the Game of Thrones board game. 
Oh, yeah. Where you're, you're like, right. somehow the Tyrells are over here. And Stannis is at the wall. How did everything happen like this? That's a good point. <laughs> or, or, I mean, I say we, we both play the CK2 mod. Yes. Uh, you know, have, have you ever just put it on and then just let it on observer mode? Yes. yes. And, and just let it run for 400 years and see what happens. And you're like, wait a minute. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you, you start it and then you go to bed and then you go in the morning. You see like what happens. Why, why is Dorn in control, in control of Norvo? Yeah, why does Roose Bolton have dark sister? Or why do the Boltons have dark sister? You know, like all these things. Like, how did that happen? <laughs> yeah, that is a really fun part of that game. Yeah, so this is, you're right, this is like this. We have this, what we're told is sort of a stable Westeros. It's been that way for so long. Barristan's a kind of a conservative guy in terms of his outlook on the on the world. And then this happens. Like, yeah, what? Chainsaw <laughs> goes through the feudal order. Yeah, it's so different. Talk about, everything's the same until it isn't. And so much is different. That's really neat. Another thing about Barristan that's, that he maybe is revi- he revises his opinion on, at least in the moment, is, is sellswords. As he's charging, we have that line, he'll never again doubt the valor of sellswords. Now, Joe points out, eh, maybe Barristan should have known better. He, it's never been valor that's in question for sellswords. It's, it's, it's loyalty. It's their, it's, it's, you know, things like that. As far as like their ability, I mean, they're professional fighters. Of course, they're going to be pretty good at it or they wouldn't, no one would pay them. <laughs> but the point here is, I'm not sure Barrison's ever fought on the same side as Selsword. Maybe there were some Selsword companies on, you know, Robert's Rebellion. I'm not sure. We don't. It's not mentioned. Probably. That I mean, possible, we, but in every other Westeros war, we do see because it's like you know we have the Free Riders that were signed that signed on with the Lannisters, and then they jump ship to the Starks and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. So I, I think so, but I honestly think that's cultural posturing. You have to remember that Westeros is a military aristocracy. Yes. So they're going to look down on essentially people who are doing what they are born to do to be in trade is what they're supposed to do. It's the same way that, um, what's his name, Illyrio, just he postures to the Westerosi about how, how they're looking for a strong, firm hand, and they think they're all wolves and lions and eagles. <laughs> That's because they, because they have it on a banner somewhere. Yeah, I mean, they make too much of themselves, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I do like that part of Martin's world building. He actually makes them, I mean, he, he world builds the, the parts that are would make them more human and believable. And I mean, it's, it's cultural posturing. It was a very big thing in the Middle Ages. Yeah. Like uh, Mace Tyrell is a great example. I mean, Mace Tyrell has actual military experience. He's he's trained to be a knight. He's not some complete scrub, but he makes himself out to be far more than he is. Yeah. Whereas these slavers, their abilities are almost entirely made up. Like they're ex- they, they don't even like the they're idiotic. What's his, what's yeah, his name? Uh, the Yellow Whales like had this reputation of being a warrior. Like that guy. Like what? <laughs> it's like that's yeah. clearly made up. Like when was that guy a warrior? It's like, because you had pounds ago. Yeah, you had slaves to tell you that you were, say you were a exactly. warrior. Like, he doesn't even play Sivas by himself. Like, he has his, he, even, he can't yeah. even do that alone. No. Like, <laughs> it's like, yeah. come on, man. And the uh, the conflict between the sellswords and the professional Westerosi military aristocracy could also be seen as kind of a precursor to the uh, eventual Renaissance uh, conflict of the burghers versus the aristocracy. You know the 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 city and the the uh, these upwardly mobile merchant class as opposed to the old established aristocracy. So that that was a conflict that was hugely important to the society and culture of Europe in the Renaissance era. And I could see, we could see a lot of that here as well. I mean, of course, in real medieval history, professional soldiers were a lot more common than is just you know we have a couple of knights and then we have a whole bunch of peasant levies wielding farm equipment, which wasn't. Mm-hmm. Well, that that's not true. It's it, but it is it does 
makes for interesting character moments. I mean, we, we get the broken man speech mm-hmm. kind of informed on that a little bit. But in, in truth, it was usually some professionals, some semi-professionals, some quasi-professionals. And then in an emergency, you could go to the peasant levy if you needed it. Okay. Yeah, and, and speaking of, of things like that, I don't know that we'll ever get it. Because as we said, maybe Barristan doesn't make it this far. But I really want to know, I would be very curious to see his take on Golden Company. Given, oh, yeah. You know, given their professionalism, not just, not just the, his take. Like, I'm very curious to his reaction to the existence of Young Griff. But setting that aside, just the Golden Company and, and how that skilled leadership is going to be pitted against the Lannister Tyrell forces, which don't really yeah. have a lot of skilled leadership. I mean, they have some, but it, it's mostly I think they have in Ra- Randall Tarly. It's just yeah. Randall Tarly that's Good left, point. really. Yeah, Tarly, and he may switch sides. So <laughs> as far as, yeah. it's, it's not that they don't have competent commanders uh, yeah. necessarily. It's that they're not the ones in charge. Uh, it, and Tarly the Golden Company are even greater because they, they have the professionalism, but they also have a pragmatism that seeks them to devote to success. Yes. Whereas, like, you know, I mean, you have guys like, you know, you see that the archers and the, the infantry and the cavalry train together. That yeah. doesn't happen. That doesn't happen in Westeros. There's yeah. too many cla- class differences. That was a, a big revolution from um, the, in the Great Northern War with Gustavus Adolphus, uh, the king of Sweden. That was one of the things that was amazing with him is that he had the, the artillery and the infantry and the cavalry all training together and they fought together and they had they mixed together and they were much more effective. The whole was greater than the sum of its parts. If nothing else, the Golden Company needs to bring that to Westeros. If they actually want if Westeros actually wants to have to be worth a damn in, in the later scheme of things. I mean, wouldn't that be great to actually have a decent decent military command and training against the others. We're not going to get that because they're already moving. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you know, we, we, we were talking about it. I mean, we saw that with Tyrion and yes. uh, the, cavalry, the, the, the artillery crews, the wildfire. You have to do this. Anybody that fails must be dismissed. We must have accountability at this entire level. This is too important to leave to not being trained. Could you imagine if we, they were doing that to the others? Yeah. Whoa. That would actually be something be spectacular going yeah. forward. But maybe maybe that's going to be, I mean, my my overall prediction is uh, a broken seven kingdoms, as in they go released to the component kingdoms. But there's ties of diplomacy and trade and all this other stuff between them so that the dream of Aegon isn't dead, even if the Iron Throne is gone. Mm-hmm. And maybe that will maybe that will be something that maybe that will be something that that go, that goes through it along with these uh things if there's a a surviving member of the golden company or someone with associate experience or maybe Tyrion. Yeah, good point. A couple of quick parallels uh, a little add on to our shadow facts discussion uh not the shadow facts part but just the connecting a dot here with the description of the silver when we meet her for the first time Danny Anina points out that Danny thinks of the silver as no ordinary animal, quote, spirited and splendid. When she first rode the horse, she found herself moving faster than she had intended. She tells Drogo that she, uh, that he's given her the wind. Um, and now we see, like, in action, yep, this horse really is special yeah. and fast. And the Dothraki know their horses. And there's a reason yeah. why this one was esteemed above yeah. all others yeah. other than maybe yeah. Drogo's itself. Yeah, this is this is a, a good this is good by Dothraki standards. Yeah, you know, the, the, these are people who I mean, you know, the Dothraki stereotype of them being, you know, just, uh, you know, the, the barbarian hordes is not true, as we see when we when we get into their we get into their, you know, Danny's POV chapters and in, in behind them. And even when, you know, yeah. like they, they know how to breed their horses, they can make good horse. They can breed good horses and powerful horses. And this is a mighty mighty specimen yeah. 
So <laughs> I, I have a and that's uh, that's also why I don't think she's going to die to some random spear. Okay, yeah, she, she's she's just too good. Yeah, this she's is like, too good. I also yeah. wonder if Drogon knowing the smell of the silver would be relevant at all. Uh, Certainly, it's well, the other way around seems to be relevant. The silver being yeah. used to the dragons. Yeah, that that's was pointed true. out. But we do have some, definitely we have some legendary horses in history, like uh, Matsukaze is the famous Japanese horse who who could run until he bled and oh, would keep running. Jeez. Well, no, 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 in a good way. As in, as in he was just so tireless that he could run until he would literally had to stop. Wow. So in, in that sort of thing. I mean, you know, but uh, we, we, I mean, we have that, uh, what was this? I think it was Durandal was the horse of Roland, or was that his sword? I can't remember. Uh... Um, yeah, no, there's there's always been legendary horses. Bucephalus, have, of course. Yeah, yeah, Bucephalus. <laughs> yeah, Alexander's um, horse. Yeah. And there's just, uh, I mean, even I think, what is it? Belisarius was once covered in dirt and grime from the battlefield, and nobody recognized that he was a, uh, he was a, his, he was who he said he was, but they recognized his horse. <laughs> so they fired on the gray, the gray bay, I think it was, the gray-faced bay or something like that. Nice. <laughs> uh, so it was kind of, yeah, it was, it was kind of, so yeah, all of these legendary horses, they, they have their, their place. That's why I don't think, uh, like I said, she's not going out just randomly off page. She's, she's too important. It was insulting what the show did to that horse. The sort the horse just died of exposure in the, in the red waste. Another quick parallel. Nina points out the, the similarity between the Yurkazo Yunzak's death and the little pigeon's death. Both of them were tramp, somewhat trampled by, after tripping on like their tokar, the fringes of their bird armor. And it's the same kind of thing in that it's, yeah. it's very karmic. Like they were killed by their own trappings of power, like their own right, right. outfits or why they couldn't run away. <laughs> their own elite self-conception literally took the legs out from under them. Ooh, well said. Yeah, so they, that is nice. Good catch, Nina. Now let's talk about some historical parallels. This brings us way back to the thing we talked about at the beginning. Now the first episode you ever did with us was on the red grass field. And in the last or second, I can know it's the last sentence of the synopsis, which may actually be the last sentence. Of course, we don't know for sure. He says, it's like Baylor Breakspear and Prince Makar, the hammer and the anvil. We have them. We have them. Now, so that's a re- reference to the Redgrass Field. Baylor Breakspear leading was the hammer, Makar the anvil. They were brothers. And this was the end of the battle, basically. Uh, Damon had already been killed at this point. So it was kind of already going badly because of that for the Blackfire side. But I can't help but notice that <laughs> the, a key moment in the red grass field was Bittersteel's mad charge at Bloodraven, who he didn't kill, but took out his eye and recovered uh, the sword, uh, had recovered the sword Blackfire. Yep. And it's kind of, to me, reminds me of the, the famous charge here by Barristan. We have bird people in both cases, Bloodraven and his raven's teeth. Yep. They're a little more impressive than the little pigeon in the herons but it's still the same bird yeah. thing they have their armor yeah. and everything <laughs> there, there is still the bird the, the bird metaphors it's also it could be possibly good or possibly bad for barristan because the one king's guard that we know of was going gaunt going gaunt yeah or Gwyn gaunt, that's and right. and he was wounded but survived yeah because because uh damon demanded that he be taken or halted the charge so that he could be taken back to the maesters yeah after they fought their epic duel there you're right epic duel got him in the face or something and that was yeah Yeah. it didn't quite kill him although i don't know if anybody that could actually fight duel 
Barrist and so, yeah. But but so I mean, you know, obviously the the parallels aren't one for one. No. But uh, ha- hammer and anvil tactics are useful. Essentially, you have a a fixed position, and then you have a mobility unit that flanks an enemy and essentially drives them into the uh, infantry, who can then, since they're they they're fixed, and they've got their fixed position. Essentially, they they get pushed against the shields. The close combat, they're able to cut them down. And then the hammer keeps pushing them, and simply there's nowhere for them to move. So hammer and anvil tactics are common. I mean, that's yeah. one of honestly, it's one of the big thing, the big advantages of having a, an infantry and a mobility is that you can pin one against the other, and it's useful when you have a numerical advantage. I mean, but uh, you know, we have the it's it's good. It's like you know, it's accidental tactics. But again, you can see because he, you know, Barristan didn't plan on the Ironborn being there, but once he sees that they're there. He immediately says, "Okay, this is what we're going to do." Another reference to Barristan actually having the tactical chops of being an actual battlefield. Mm-hmm. Right on, well said. So, also, and a couple other just small parallels, minor parallels here related to the Redgrass Field. Barristan's objective: he makes sure everyone knows one of their goals, one of the most important things they can do. Each individual unit is kill the slavers, free the slaves, because partly that just undermines their entire army because the slaves aren't loyal to the slavers they'll they may switch sides we we express that as sort of an inverse parallel to how the others work if the others kill one of your men they take them and make them a soldier to go against you barrison has the ability to do that here every slave he frees is a potential soldier for their side uh so it's more than just killing one. yeah yeah exactly just something like that even if it yeah. just neutralizes them but they may actually join which is uh, yeah yeah but even if they're a support unit even if, if they may not be able to fight but they can repair equipment they can do all sorts yeah. of stuff i mean Boy. they say they say i mean even in modern in the modern military i think it's like anywhere from 75 to 200 support staff for one soldier for one actual infantry soldier damon maybe we're leaning into what we saw with uh, what we're trying to guess at with Barristan and how Damon was unbeatable um, until someone killed him from afar with arrows. That's sort of what Barristan sees as like feather as many of the slavers. You can't shoot them from afar. This also relates to the death of Fireball on the day before the battle, which was a huge loss for the, for the Blackfire side. And it shows that killing the important leaders can really you know, cut the head off the snake concept. Really, yeah. Uh, since she, seeing Barrison is like you said, it's like you don't, you can't. It's hard for you to imagine a single guy who could beat Barrison in one-on-one combat. And he decides maybe that's what we're leading up to here. He can't be beaten in combat, but treachery. You can get him with treachery. You can stab him in the back. That's the way to, that he has to be removed because one-on-one, it's never going to happen. So, and, and also like the Redgrass Field. Yes, it was a decisive battle. Like this one will probably be, but it wasn't over after that. The Yunkish were done are going to be done probably. And maybe and in it, for a while, the black fires were done, but the problems weren't over. So that's not a one-to-one relationship. It's not going to be the Yunkish that are over with, but the problems that can be explained by this battle, they're still going to exist. Barrison's, there can still be political issues that Barrison is less equipped to handle. And I don't know, that's, that's something that we don't necessarily have answers for, but it's something to draw everyone's attention to. Do you have any comments on that? Well, I mean, for one, I mean, certainly if the, I mean, the Yunkish put a lot of their strength into this, I wouldn't be surprised if Yunkai collapses. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be anything good. I mean, as we saw with Astapor, when the council, uh, when, you know, the, the, the power void, the council was left there, then they collapsed and then the, uh, Cleon ended up repeating the same atrocity that made the Unsullied. Yes. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if in the weak state that was let, Yunkai was left, if they collapsed and another warlord takes over, or if Nugis, or if Nugis goes expansionary. I mean, it's the same thing with, uh, Volantis. Volantis might get 
toppled. But if Philantus is a parallel for the Byzantine Empire, and they, they, uh, there was a lot of slavery in the Byzantine Empire, what came next was the Ottoman Empire, and they were, if anything, in even greater slave pa- uh, enslaving power. Oof. So, you know, just because, I mean, it's like, I mean, I, I love this metaphor. I, I wrote it, I want to say I wrote it uh, 10 years ago or Ooh. something. <laughs> It's, all, it's a lot like gardening. Pulling out a weed doesn't mean something good grows in its place. Oh, yeah. Um, you get a worse weed, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it, it was, I, I wrote it for a tabletop game that I played a long time ago, and I like that line, and I've just, it's just been with me ever since. But that's the case. They could be with Volantis and uh, Yunkai. Just because they get toppled doesn't mean there's going to be something good. But at the same time, that's, you know, that's... Uh, that's real. George R. R. Martin's, yeah, yeah. That's, that's real, yeah. And it's, it's Martin's, Martin's more romantic, realistic style. Yeah. Um, as opposed to, you know, all was well, it's just, no, I mean, not, not necessarily all was well, all is well, but I mean, the struggle could be real, but it's worth doing. And, you know, it's worth toppling Yunkai because of their bloody empire of, of sexual slavery. And even if something doesn't good crows in its place, it's worthwhile to fight that. And if something bad shows up, it's worth fighting that too. Well said. Yeah. And to add to that as well, it's a really good dot connecting to a theme we've been talking about all through Valoritas, which is it can always get worse. We've we've, <laughs> we've we've shown this so many times, like that's the that's the arc of the Starks to this point. It's just like, oh, okay, now they're gonna it's gonna get better. Nope. It's gonna nope. <laughs> the vil, the overarching villains, it goes from Joffrey to like Ramsey to like Euron. Like that's clearly getting worse, right? <laughs> and it's like you say, just because you get rid of the evil doesn't mean something more evil won't come in and replace it. But like you also said, that doesn't mean it's not worth fighting that evil just because you, you can't necessarily beat it. That doesn't mean the fight isn't worthwhile because uh, you can reduce it. You can mitigate it. Right. That's always, there's always that. No chance, no choice. I mean, as Brienne shows us, it's always worth doing. Yes. Even if you're going to lose, it's worth doing. Great reference there. That is the best quote you could have possibly oh, it, said. There. It, yeah. <laughs> Brienne, Brienne is a chapter, you know, when you first read the Brienne POV, a lot of people didn't like it it's true. because they felt that it went nowhere, but it really grows on you. It's so I mean, good. Yeah, it's I mean, so good. Yeah. Honestly, I, I like the, the birding, the dragons with, the, with Nimble Dick Crab, but almost even more than No Chance, No Choice. It's just my it's my so favorite good. little subdued moment. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, and, and I, that's why we do Valor. Well, I say we, you do reread. reread. <laughs> well, yes, but you do it clearly more than I do. Sure. In, you know, exploring these chapters yeah. is that we can we can gain more things and appreciation from them and a new perspective. And, yeah. and that's always nice. So the last little parallel, like I said, is is the pit fighters and the free folk. We're looking for lots of examples, lots of fun parallels, some sort of some, some sometimes they're thematic, sometimes they're cultural. And I, I I'm struck by a lot of the similarities here. Constantly, we're looking for things to tie John's arc, Danny's arc, and this is one of those things. Basically, the pit fighters are very individualistic. They they they're they like glory. They're diverse culturally within that group. Like you've got guys from all over the world, and I mean guys and gals really. And their attitude is very like you know me versus someone. Like that's how they want it to come out. Uh, and and they make a lot of noise. That's neat because Barristan told them to do that. He's like make no, make lots of noise when you come out, and he, he hears them. 200 of them making noise enough for 2,000. is like, all right, good job. That's what, what I wanted you to do. Uh, and they're entertainers. They're showmen. So that, that works really well. They're good at getting attention, and they look really colorful. So that's interesting. And the free folk are kind of like that, too. They're, they're very much about individual goals. They, they have a cultural you know, connection point. They all see each other as free folk. But within that group, there's a lot of infighting and, and yeah. differences and things like that. And of course, there's not a whole lot that's similar between, say, the 
people on the frozen shore as compared to like the Fens or the like yeah. Craster. Like those aren't really that similar other than yeah. a, a few basic things. So do you have anything to add to that? I just thought it was kind of neat. It's not necessarily no, a big no, point behind it all, but I just think it's cool. It is good. And, and Barristan's using them right. Gladiators are, well, for one, I mean, you could see the equipment with the gladiators. I mean, you have one woman who's going essentially topless, which is going to be really bad if, an, I mean, a python's not going to stop an arrow. Um, <laughs> She'd be sad if she lost her python, too. <laughs> uh, I would be sad, too. That python didn't deserve that. Uh, but gladiators aren't really, they, they understand war and they understand weapons. So they do un- have some training, but they're typically trained either on one-on-one battle or they're trained in small units. Uh, they don't really have as much experience in large-scale formations. That we see. I mean, there there have been some games in, in Roman times where you know, I mean, they've even had naval engagements where they flood the arena and things like that. But I don't didn't really see that in this kind of these kind of gladiatorial games. I really saw them more as small units, maybe any no more than four or five per. Mm-hmm. We saw with I mean with the farce with uh, tearing and penny and stuff like that. Yeah. So using them in, as intimidation to help bring again that phobos as we were talking about before is a good use for them and again that goes back to barristan knowing what he's doing and you know he doesn't really have experience with that but i mean i'm reminded i think uh, of the battle of um um, by the way yeah shout out to jim's uh, podcast two wage war lesser known yeah. battles like stuff that you probably never heard of i, I used uh, to cow be pens, war buff, cow I, pens, never, yeah. I heard of yeah. like almost none of these battles so cow so. pens was the one well i don't do it anymore sadly i just oh, i just okay. got really i got really discouraged with uh just having to well the episodes are still out there right yes they're, they're still out there two wage cool. war podcast uh nice. is the youtube channel but the battle of cow pens essentially he had a bunch of militia daniel morgan had a bunch of militia and uh he just said look i not want you to do everything i want you to get give me two fires and then you're home. And so his militia fired twice and then retreated behind a hillock. And then they actually thought that they were retreating. And then he actually charged into his actual regulars, Daniel Morgan's actual regulars who were able to do that. And then they actually were able to bring the cavalry and the militia around from the hillock and hit the British. And they were able to essentially win a commanding battle in about one hour. Uh, This was in uh, Carolina and West Western Carolina near the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, it's a phenomenal battle, and I really liked it. Um, but uh, that's what I see with Barristan, is that he says, well, I, I understand what I can use. These guys are not trained soldiers, but I can use them. Mm-hmm. And he picks it up very quickly. Figures out and, the best way to use them, yeah. Yeah, so, so not only does, I mean, it's a lot like Rob Stark in that way, where you can tell he very clearly has a military-oriented and analytical mind, mm-hmm. even if... In his previous chapters, we just saw him getting played like a fiddle. <laughs> right. <laughs> nice. One other thing about Barrish in the Redgrass Field I neglected to mention, it's kind of neat, is maybe a clue about what side the Selmies fought. You would think the Selmies fought for the Blackfires because most of the marchers did, but we don't know for sure. And we even know, we have that quote from Barristan's great-grandfather, not a direct quote, where Barristan thinks how it would be, he'd be horrified to learn that he was working with Dornish, you know, <laughs> like when he works with Archibald and, and uh, Garrus, he's like, well, you're going to negotiate with them. He's like, my grandsire would have hated this. So, or my, his great grandsire, whichever one he thinks of. Nina and I are trying to figure out where Harvest Hall is even. It's not on the map. All we know is it's in the marches. So we don't know exactly. That didn't help us. But it might be a clue because he's, he's positive. He's like, it's like Baylor and Makar. Now, if he, if his family had fought for the Blackfires, he might not be so excited about Baylor and Makar winning because that's the other side. But if they were loyalists, which we originally thought would be the less likely possibility, then he would be. Then it makes sense that he would be excited about that memory. But it could just be like, oh, that was a really good decisive. He could just yeah, I mean, it could win. Yeah, 
appreciate the strategy and all it that. It could just so. be, I mean, it's also, you know, it's a storybook victory. Yeah. And, and you have to remember, it's also, there's a lot of distance between. Yeah, it's been many generations. Yeah, it's yeah. been. So, so I, I think it's just probably, it's like, wow, this is an actual real life historical thing, you know, a great moment in history that's playing out in front of me and I'm a part of it. Yeah. I, think, I think that's. Yeah, and Barrison slew Maylis, who is a Blackfire descendant. So that's not as clearly he's not like super Blackfire yeah. guy if he's killing yeah. a Blackfire yeah. descendant. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. let's let's be honest. I mean, you know, Barristan's an old man, but there's there can be a little bit of story. You know, little kid going, "Oh my God, I'm a part of history." Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I really that that's what I got. What I got from that. I mean, you know, Barristan's too solemn to to really bring his inner child out but you know he, did, he uh, might yeah. have a little, a little bit inside a little bit inside that's a good observation yeah seeing him get excited like that is really yeah. uh, kind of a little unusual but but in a good way okay listen here's some questions from from folks here uh just a few guilty undertaker says was the red grass field always called that or was it just the grass field and renamed after all the blood was spilled yes and no it wasn't called the grass field as far as we know but it was renamed red grass field yeah. After we don't know what its name was, it may not have even had a name. We've, we've tried. We don't to even know where, where it was. was. Yeah, we've yeah. tried to figure out where it was, and we have some good guesses. We think it was southwest of Kings Landing because if you look at the the the, gra- the terrain map, it's the only area that has hills nearby yeah. the nearby Kings Landing, and we know it was close to Kings Landing, and we know the Blood Raven fired atop the Weeping Ridge, which that's air, that's you know maybe there's, yeah. there's got to be some. But, hills, but it's so. entirely possible that it's just a local a localized yeah. height. Exactly. So, it, so. It, it could easily just be a fifty a fifty foot ridge or something. Totally like agree. That. That's why it has to remain a guess and and just maybe yeah. a best guess, but still definitely just a guess. Um, well, if we can ever if we ever get a hold of George R. R. Martin, maybe we can ask him. Yeah. Question from Dornish one of Dame. one of the many filed qu- five away questions. <laughs> yeah, we've got we've got a list for him. Dornish Dame says, just as Barristan thinks it would be convenient if Dario didn't survive the battle, there are a number of Miranese who feel the same about Barristan. That's true, which speaks to this plotting. And like, if he becomes even more of a hero and that gives him even more clout, clout that his enemies or his people who maybe aren't his enemies, but see him as an obstacle, they wouldn't, they wouldn't scrutin, they wouldn't uh, scruple to, to take him out. Hari Christian says, I love Barristan, but I also feel terrible for the four, four herons. That is the most disturbing thing about this battle. We were supposed to cheer on as the anti-slavery faction slaughters slaves. Yeah, it is sad. Like he, that's why he says he wants to save as many as he can and free as many of them as he can, but there's no way to, yeah. to not kill you some you can't, of them. You can't save them all. Yeah. And that's something that Bar- that's, that's a really good point, actually, because Danny has struggled with that. She has yeah. this attitude where I have to try to save them all, but she knows she can't. She has to try to get around that. She has to, she has to talk herself to a more rational framework because it really hurts her like she's like i really want to save every single one of them but it's just so unreal it's so impossible like no of course you can't save them all um and she has to figure out a way to not let that you know she has to accept that that's difficult too though yeah as as harry christian here points out it's really hard to accept innocent deaths but uh that is the way of it yeah no it really is Mel Draghart, speaking of battles, am I the only one who feels Battle of Fire will be very similar to Battle of Vienna with Dothraki in the Hussars role? Well, I don't know the Battle of Vienna very well. I'm hoping you do, Jim. What's uh... Uh, Yeah, yeah. So the, bat- the Battle of Vienna was basically the, uh, the Ottoman invasion into Europe, one of the, one of the many uh, Ottoman invasions into Europe. Uh, I believe it was uh, Mustafa Pasha uh, and leading a basically just a, to, to try and take Vienna because that was essentially after, after Hungary essentially after Hungary fell to the Ottomans, that was kind of the gateway to Eastern Europe was Vienna. That basically, if there's ever going to be any sort of regional command center for Europeans, it would be in Vienna. And they eventually failed to take it in the, the charge of the, the famed winged hussars 
the king of Poland was the one who led the relief forces with these winged hussars. I believe his name was uh, Jan the Third. I believe okay. was his name. Uh, I don't think so. I think the, the Dothraki are too far away. Okay. Okay. I think if there is a Dothra or a hussar role, it's going to be taken by the Ironborn. Oh, okay. Well. Uh, I mean, and that that is a mobility unit. A little different, but uh, no, very good reference though. I mean, you know, what do you call it? It's uh, you're after my own heart, Mel. Finding finding battle references. I'm glad I'm not the only one. <laughs> nice. Yeah, there's a few here. Matthew Dominique says, when Larrick is hit by an arrow, I didn't understand if he actually got hurt by it, if he wore armor, so it was okay. What do you think? I feel like the armor stopped the blow and it just like pushed him. There's certainly, we've seen this. Uh, certainly, uh, the best example I can think of is um, Shaga. Yeah, of course. Like after the battle, Tyrion's like, oh my God, Shaga's like full of arrows, but most of them didn't penetrate his skin. They just yeah. like, get through yeah. one layer of armor into the next layer of armor and then doesn't get far enough to get him. Where, where does it, where does it hit him? What yeah. kind of arrowhead is it? I mean, it could be a bodkin point arrow, in which case that could pierce armor. It could be a flathead arrow or a broad, broadhead arrow, in which case it's more, that's more designed for actually piercing flesh and causing large lacerating damage, in which case it, it wouldn't penetrate the uh, armor. Probably what type of armor is Larrick wearing? Yeah. I mean, how, how good is it? We, we don't know. It's um, probably not a really, really bad wound, or he probably wouldn't have been able to keep going, but he may have, it may be a yeah. flesh wound. Or, or it's an entirely possible infection could sit in later, but, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. but it, I mean, I don't think so, if only because we would have, maybe Barristan would have said something if he had actually been really bad. Okay. I mean, but but we don't even have yeah. the, we, we, we have a, a synopsis. We don't have, we have whatever True. is. So, I mean, I, I don't know, but that is a great segue to something Joe wrote here. He said, this will have been a very hard, bloody chapter, probably much more so than the summary itself is getting across. That will probably help explain Barristan's relief and expand on his anxiety when he sees those ships for the first time. He's like, oh my God, the Volantines. And he's like, oh my God, the Iron Board. Wait, they're on our side. Like that roller coaster of emotions is something that George is going to do a probably do a fantastic job with because he's so good at that the synopsis doesn't get that across so it's something that i think it's a good good point by joe to, to bring our attention to that is yeah when we read the full chapter it's probably going to be like way more intense even though we know what's going to happen because just george is so good at that um, and of course there will be a few things that we don't know is going to happen there's going to be a few surprises probably Dornish Dame says, Barristan tells Danny he's squired for Lord Swan. Maybe the Selmies are sworn to Stonehelm. Yeah, there's a, that's possible. It's also possible that things have changed because we know that, I be, if I'm remembering correctly, the Selmies were higher ranked and they aren't anymore. And I think it may have been being on the wrong side of something. It may have even been Robert's Rebellion that, no, that couldn't be it because they were on the winning side. Yeah, um, I don't think so. If only because first off, we do see, like for example, uh, the Lannister, Jamie st- got squired for Lord Craycall. And the Kraykals are sworn to the Lannisters, not the other way around. True, um, true. I think they're actually, relatively speaking, of, in, of equal rank, although I think the Swans have a little bit higher prestige. because Take, I would say they are not the same rank, because House Selmy are landed knights, whereas um, House Swan, they're their oh. primary noble house. And that's what I was saying about maybe them losing that rank, because I think they may oh. have been a primary noble house, oh. aren't anymore. Yeah, that's uh, true. Because I think there's references to them oh, being yeah, you're right. in the past. Oh, you're right. That was a se- that was a semi-canon source. That's why I didn't. Uh, but yeah, yeah, no. That I mean, it's, it's possible, but it's also possible that they're just uh, they're actually just sworn to the Baratheons themselves. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like the, the the Knight of Nine Stars. Yes, yes. Yeah. Like, there's knightly like guys who are actually like basically as powerful as lords, even if the title doesn't say they are. So yeah, yeah it's tricky. It's tricky. But, no, but no, no. You got that right. Thank, uh, thanks for the correction, Ashaya. 
Okay, next question. We've got uh, Justin DL97. I knew about elephants going haywire, but flaming pigs is a new one for me. Penny foreshadowing? I hope not. So I don't, don't think so. So because Penny Penny wrote the dog, not the pig, if I remember correctly. So that, yep. but that is a I hadn't thought of. That's interesting. Like, and I yeah. don't suppose I, I don't, either. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think we've ever actually heard seen any war pigs or anything like that yeah. in uh, in this thing. That that's just more of just a one of those weird things that happens throughout history. I mean, I remember. <laughs> I think it was in Odessa. They to stop a war elephant, they just hung a pig off the ground. So where its, its hooves were just off the ground, Whoa. so it started it started to squeal, and the squeal disoriented the elephant, and it fell off of a cliff. I wonder how they figured that out in the first place. Like, let's try a pig squealing. Well, <laughs> Maybe I mean, that'll so, stop an elephant. So, so, <laughs> so, I mean, well, I mean, that is a good question. Uh, my guess is is that they were bringing the elephants out through the stables probably or something accident, like that. Yeah, yeah probably <laughs> by accident. But yeah, no. The, by by that time, I do believe they knew that pig squeals really upset elephants. So, I mean, that because that was known in the Roman times, and this was after the Roman times, so if they were well-read on their history. But still, that's really funny. It's like, hey, there's an elephant going to batter down our gates. Let's hang this pig off the ground. <laughs> that'll, that'll solve our problem. That'll do it. Yeah, so many problems can be solved by hanging a pig a few inches off the ground. If I had a nickel. <laughs> I, I hope they didn't slaughter that pig for meat afterwards. I think that, that pig needs to get, like, the Wilbur from Charlotte's Web Seriously, treatment. you drove off elephants? That's a hero pig. I mean, and it went through the, the suffering, too. So, yeah, you better not eat that pig. <laughs> so that pig is going to save Penny or Tyrion's life? The squeal <laughs> when an elephant comes up to them? Like, elephant's going to run off. Like, I... <laughs> If if George R. R. Martin did that, I would give him a high five in the next <laughs> conference if I ever see him. I get, ta- I get tackled by his minions. <laughs> it's like, no, I'm just high fiving him for the pig thing, and he's like, proceed. <laughs> I've never actually actually got to never got to actually ask him a question. I got uh, when we were at Balticon, they asked the person next to me. Yeah. Well, you may have a chance if you come to Discon. I don't know if everyone's aware of this yet, but Discon is Worldcon, and Worldcon has resolved the problem of its timing versus COVID by moving to December. So that's a mm. challenge for some people because it's just Christmas week. So that some people just can't Ooh, do that. Yes. Yeah, it'll be December 17th. So it's not actually Christmas on. week. It's December it's 15th that. to 19th. So it's not actually on Christmas. So yeah, I misspoke. It's actually depends on where it is. The issue is that it's multiple people have like December trips. It's down the street from me. Yeah, so you should be able to make that, right? DC. So yeah. I should be able to. So, yes. Yeah, that shouldn't be a problem. Washington, DC, December 15th to 19th, 2021. You should look into getting an attending membership. If you're listening to this and you think you can go, you have plenty of time to plan accordingly. But uh I highly recommend it. George will be there if things are if if it's safe enough for us to attend. George will be there. Yeah, and George, as we've said several times, is very generous with his time. He signs, but you know, he'll he's great at signings. He'll sign everything. He'll uh, if, if 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 it goes over, he waits till people are done. If it goes yeah. under, he lets people go through the line twice. We've got plenty of experience yeah. with this, and we've seen he's just really he's awesome about that. And if yeah. we're really lucky, he'll do like a reading or a Q and A session. And then yeah, he yeah. is awesome with the fans. He, yeah, is really he really is. is. We're, we're lucky that he's a good person because it would suck if he if he sucked. <laughs> <laughs> we, we would hate it, having that sort of conflict in a fandom where the creator probably the community sucks. wouldn't be as good too. That's true. So it really it all so kind we, of so if he, if he sucked, we probably wouldn't be doing this. You're right. It's a it's a very important trickle down effect, or maybe. Not even a trickle down effect. It's an important like core, yeah, of direct, the whole thing. direct correlation, direct yeah. correlation. So, well, I still couldn't think of what last question I had. So, I guess we'll just have to t- tackle that some other time, perhaps. Check the message boards, etc. 
Shout out to Bran Winslow for a longtime listener and supporter, fellow uh, Atlantan. He, uh, our former fellow Atlantan. Yeah, I was and, say. Yeah, uh, but he helped us out with some of our uh, technical stuff. I mean, you could probably explain it better than yes, you, Yes, I can. I have a lot. Well, for one, you can tell that I'm able to speak when we have a guest, and I can. I was muted right there. Amazing. <laughs> I couldn't do that before. So now I am able to use the mixer and the interface together, and it sounds wonderful, and it's all because of him. So yeah. everybody... Uh, give applause to Brandon Winslow, Brand the Builder, and uh, we will have more. I will be singing his praises probably every week for a little while. (laughs) (laughs) And speaking of audio stuff, uh, if you are wanting to participate or have participated in our Winds of Winter chapter audio project, please let us know. You can email us, you can message us on Patreon, you can message us on Facebook, Twitter, pretty much any of the places we interact. You can, you can, uh, ask us questions. The main place where it's being discussed is on the Discord. Uh, that's where we have a channel just for that. And the Victorian chapter is already out, as a lot of you have heard already. The Mercy chapter is getting close. Uh, Jim here is going to be part of one of them, uh, at least one of them. And uh, we've got lots of cool f- voices that are going to be participating. It's super fun. Uh, you guys can be surprised with some of the voices that pop up here and there. There's some really neat uh, surprises as to who's contributed a line here and there. And uh, I can't wait to see both y'all, all, y'all's reactions to these surprises and to just the chapters in general because the first one was so fun. So, yeah. Uh, well, thanks for coming, Jim. It was awesome having you. This episode flowed really well. We bounced ideas off of each other really well. It almost we complimented didn't feel like each other really well. Yeah. <laughs> so, really appreciate you coming on. We'll definitely have to have you again soon. And I look forward to conventions where we can do panels together as well. Absolutely. 100%. Can I say, Aziz, you just said um, you guys complimented each other really well. <laughs> well, you complimented each other really well right there <laughs> on so. your complimenting. We both compliment with an I and with an E. Meta. <laughs> we do love the wordplay around here, so that's fair. Yes, I know you love those puns. <laughs> we can. Every time he makes a bad every time he makes a bad pun, I always do some sort of some sort of tweet where I'm just, like I, I retweet where I'm like, just stop. Yeah, he, try, <laughs> just he, stop. he tries to cancel me every time. It never works, but you know, it's worth it's, it's, I, it's just like all these I other think, things. It's worth the effort, even though you know it won't work. It, it is worth the effort. To <laughs> no try chance, no choice. Try to ban you from the internet, even if only for five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> yep so uh this episode we referred to a few of our other past episodes mostly the Blackfire series uh the redgrass field episode in particular we referred to but really it's hard to refer to just one episode in that series without referring to all of them so highly recommend checking them out if you haven't it's at the beginning of our feed these days we rearranged our podcast feed which is a neat thing that we're able to do these days uh it's one of the fun things that's changed in the podcast world that wasn't a thing before uh, so we rearranged everything. If you go to the beginning of our feed, it starts with episode one of the Blackfire Rebellions and it just goes all the way through. So um, that's pretty cool. Also relevant, perhaps our white cloak turned is still white. We didn't really get into those topics, but it is a Barristan episode. Uh, so that's that's uh, relevant. Same with our Serwin of the Mirror Shield episode, similar uh, related topics and things like that. Do you, is there anything or you want to shout out here at the end, Jim? No, oh, no. I mean, you know, I'm... Uh, I've been having fun. I started Twitch now, so if you want to watch me murder Yoke Boy and Aziz in, in Among Us. <laughs> That's true. We've been playing Among Us. That has been fun. Yeah, the Radio uh, Westeros Discord, we played with, with them uh, just two days ago, so that was fun. Yeah, we, yeah. I'm, in, yeah, I'm, on, and I'm, on, I'm on Twitch, and I stream, I stream those. Uh, so if you want to go and watch, like I said, if you want to watch me be 
a terrible imposter. You know, <laughs> uh, or, or I also play uh, Paradox games and other RPGs and stuff like that on there. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you can find me there. Uh, that's the same as my Twitter handle, JM underscore S-L-A-L. So JM something like a lawyer. Um, otherwise, you know, I'm always happy to answer questions on uh, about the series, uh, about writing, about history, about world building. I think I actually do a lot. I think I even actually do more writing and world building history uh, questions than I do uh, series questions these days because I'm, you know, we're really we're really mining the source material dry. Uh, well. I am. You guys aren't. You guys still have plenty of content to go. <laughs> that just means you're better. That just means you're better than me. There is one. Oh, go ahead. Less specialized. <laughs> Less specialized. That is true. That is true. There is actually a question here I missed. Someone asked about you mentioned you mentioned the Battle of Ice and the Nevsky connection. That's a perfect example of something that you're very good at. Making you know you're very good at uh, drawing people's attention to the source material of where, like where George's inspiration for some of these battles came from. Mm -hmm. And um, why you could, yeah, give us a quick one, one minute on that one. So Alexander Nevsky essentially was uh, fighting the Teutonic Knights. The, these were the, uh, the Rus and they were fighting the Teutonic Knights. And the, the story behind Alexander Nevsky was that he lured the Teutonic Knights onto an ice field where their heavy horses and armor broke the ice and they fell through. Now, this is probably not true. This probably didn't happen that way. They did, however, beat the Teutonic Knights, and then this just sort of became the myth. And in a way, actually, this is something I've talked about several times. George R. R. Martin likes to use not just history, but myths about history to tell sto stories about history to inform his own storytelling, which in a way is nice because it means that the storytelling does the heavy lifting, the myth does the heavy lifting. It's like uh, with uh, Alexander the Great against the Lycian Way, um, is exaggerated over uh, over what he what he actually did, which was impressive, but not as impressive as the stories made it out to be. Yeah. But that's what. But that's when uh, you hear about Rob Stark using the goat path, Daron the first bypassing the Dornish towers. That's the actual historical inspiration. Is Alexander the Great in the Lycian way? Nice. But you know he uses the storytelling, and because it's already a story, a lot of that you know how do I craft this element of history into a story? already works out and that's that's really good advice actually you can use stories to influence other stories hmm. and you could see what impact like george is able to look at how these myths played out in the real world and use that as the basis for how it could function in his world it's very Correct. it's very authentic that way even yeah. if it is the mythologized version yeah mythologized? that's not a word mythologized mythologized word yeah a version of it so um but which which makes sense in a setting like this where uh communication is there's, there's a lot more rumor like things aren't spread through technology like everything's word of mouth so everything naturally has the game of telephone applied to it so of course things are going to be exaggerated more than they would so it fits the setting well uh probably has it probably like it did in the real medieval world like these, these stories were probably very oh, exaggerated in their own time as well yeah i mean chroniclers were a thing history wasn't written down to be authentic it was written down to be a chronicle Yes. So why not? Why not use that, <laughs> use that for our medieval uh, medieval fantasy? Yeah, you know how someone like Alexander the Great really cared about his reputation and his uh, his legacy would not, you know, wouldn't stint on saying, "Why don't you rewrite that sentence? Let's let's 
Yeah, flower how, a little bit. <laughs> or how Daron the First's uh, uh, account of the Daron of the Dornish Wars were basically lifted whole cloth from yes. <laughs> uh, Julius Caesar and the uh, commentary de Belo Gaico. Yep, yep, very true. Yep. So you guys see just from this little like five minute post conversation here, just how much George uses history, and you knew he that already, it. a lot of y'all. But you know, it's nice. Yeah, to he loves it, and we love him for doing it. Yes. Yeah, I will say, I think it's a uh, something people talk about sometime, which is that some people read into the, his history that he's using as a source as being real, as being more realistic than it is. Whereas what you're talking about, Jim, which is that he's playing into like popular history, into the myths of it. And I don't think people think about that enough. Um, like when they talk about, well, there was, there never was a first night. And he's like, well, he knows, but he's playing into that yeah. sort of concept. Bl- yeah, he was playing into the romantic stereotype where they were trying to do, you know, denigrate the benighted dark ages where they did all of this terrible these terrible things or like the the myth that it's like medieval people didn't bathe yeah no 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 they bathed quite often there was in fact a rich bathing culture uh, <laughs> throughout throughout europe I mean, yeah what do you why do you think it was called bath in england <laughs> <laughs> yeah and vikings were big on combing their hair it's like yeah there's all these weird things that just like really you know like yeah, yeah. actually we've just been misled on some of these basic details but but, but the, the popular conceptions have power too yes so that's true and george is very george is very aware of that it's very true you, very it wouldn't be realistic if these exaggerations didn't exist within his world because that's very human to do. Yeah, that's very human to do. So, but yeah, this was a lot of fun. I'm glad I was able to be here. Like I said, the time just flew by. Hopefully everybody enjoyed it. Hope so Uh, too. I think Shay was reading the chat, so she'll be able to tell how many people (laughs) were saying that we need to stop and we're going on too long. She won't tell us to preserve to preserve our fragile egos. One one person <laughs> did say that you were sus, Jim. I will say that. <laughs> you were sus. <laughs> oh, no, oh, only only one person? <laughs> Aziz, you actually you actually figured me out purely randomly that one time. <laughs> I said it was Jim. You just said it was Jim because we were all voting you out. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you just gotta, but, you, but, you, but you were right. You gotta you were save, right I had to save one. myself somehow, right? <laughs> You'll do anything to survive. That's another thing, right? <laughs> even, even when it's not real. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, yeah, that was yeah. good, though. That was so thanks, everyone. Thanks to Ashea for running everything. Thanks to History of Westeros Mods for uh, keeping things all straight over on our Facebook group. Thanks to people who hang out on Flick and Slack and Discord as well. Uh, thanks to Michael Clarfeld, aka Claradox.de for the maps and intro music. Thanks to Kevin McLeod for our Valar Revitas music. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval for the regular History of Westeros intro-outro music. Thanks to our Benjineer for our increased sound quality. He does great work. He's also a big part of the TWOW chapter audio project, uh, along with uh, Alex, our good friend over there on the other side of the pond working on this thanks very much to all our patrons you guys are keeping us afloat through the long night here and we're trying to do our best to keep the content coming uh, through the great spring sickness through the great spring sickness that's right whoa these metaphors work too well (laughs) and uh, as always we like to give a shout out to our friends over at here be dragons today they're doing an, an episode of I know that nerd, which is a get to know you member of the fandom type episode. And today's guest for them is Geeksterilla. So check that out if you've got the time. They start at 6 Eastern every Sunday, usually right after us. So fits pretty well. And next week we have Elaine One with Radio Westeros. So that's going to be a lot of fun. That'll be a good chapter. Yeah. 
bit of a change in, in uh, attitude for a chapter, very different setting. Coming back to Westeros for once, we're, we're done with the Battle of Fire for now. So, yep, that'll be cool. So see a lot of you then. You know what to do in the meantime. Valar rereads. <laughs>